welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 88. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews. You know what made me laugh right there, you guys? What's that? I was just thinking of our sister show and how Andy always steps on my intro. And then I was thinking about how much I appreciate you guys for being so disciplined and professional as to let me say this smut over and over without messing up my intro. So I just wanted to thank you for that. And it made me chuckle. (laughs) So anyway, we typically review new releases on here and we bring ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shock Becker from Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman, Josh, Jay. I've got an opening for a new girlfriend. What do you say? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, I have no idea what to say to that. That's pretty bizarre. That's, that's your weirdest one yet. But <laughs> when we, uh, when we get into the movies, it's a surprise what movie that's from. Cause we haven't even talked about it yet. Okay, great. That's, that's what, <laughs> I feel better about being so at odds than, you know, like at a loss for that. Anyways, we do have a really cool episode planned tonight. I'm super excited about it. But before we get into all telling you what the main event is, I want to tease something to keep listeners around because I think maybe the main event will get a little bumpy, a little turbulent. Those movies might not be the greatest. <laughs> a spoiler for what's coming. But after that, we have great content with a special guest interview. Josh, do you want to do the honors? Tease that a little? Yeah. Um, There's a director named Nicholas Peterson, who I am acquainted with. We're not tight, but I am friends with his brother, actually. And I've known him for quite a while. And he has a new short film that he's promoting. And he was willing to come on the podcast and talk to us about that film. And he's just a really interesting guy. I think you guys are going to be really... um, interested in what he has to say. He's used to be a motion control guy before he started directing and he worked on films like Constantine and the ring. And we'll get into that, but then he started directing and he did a feature film and he's been really concentrating on short films lately. And his new one, sticky fingers is the one he's going to be talking about today. And we had so much fun talking. Actually, I already recorded this that we're hoping to have him back and just do an episode dedicated to short horror films, which I think could be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah, I, I can't wait to hear it. And I just, on a personal note, I just want to say, I really enjoy it when Josh here, when the Wolfman interviews filmmakers, because as a filmmaker himself, he has a great perspective and he knows some really insightful things to ask them. So Josh, you, you do a masterful job at that, so I can't wait to hear it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I think we got into some really interesting stuff, so I'm excited. I hope people enjoy it. Okay, so that's coming up. We're going to put that um, as the cherry on top of this episode. And then the main event is, this is a Frankensteinian episode, and basically we're going to get into some serious weirdness. But even before that, this is like teaser night. <laughs> this is so annoying. I'm like, before that... I want everybody to do me a favor. Go to horrormoviepodcast.com, and if you click on the title for episode 87, that's our horror comedy episode, um, maybe you've already done this, but um, if you look in that episode, check out the exceptional artwork that Wolfman Josh created 
for that show. There are two different images there that yeah, they look great. Blew me away, huh, Doc? Absolutely, they look awesome. Yeah, so I want to thank the Wolfman for his excellent contributions. Josh, you outdid yourself on those. Oh, thanks, guys. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, one more random note. Speaking about horror comedies, um, since we're talking about that again, <laughs> uh, have you guys heard of this new horror comedy called The Orange Man? No. No, I haven't either. Okay. Well, I want to give a shout out to Jeff Hammer. I think he, he may have been the one who first brought this to my attention because at the beginning of 2016 here, we were talking about things that were coming out and one one film kind of intrigued me is called The Orange Man. Um, if you look at the cover, you can see from the image, it is a slasher flick. And it's set in 1987. I've actually watched some of it. I'm not going to review it right now because I I have not gotten through all of it. Not really my cup of tea thus far. But um, this this door-to-door orange salesman, and yes, I'm talking about the citrus fruit, he kind of gets fed up and ticked off because he gets rejected a lot. He gets treated poorly. And so he decides to start killing everybody. (laughs) As one does. I guess so, since... Since you can pick up oranges just about anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you better watch it, Doc. He's going to come for you. Um, But it's weird. He has this like this hook, this hay baler kind of hook. And um, yes, sometimes he does use orange implements (laughs) to kill people. But it's it's a... Orange implements. What well, like orange, what are, like like a peeler. Uh, no, I mean oranges themselves, like a bag of oranges oh, okay. to beat people. But oh, okay. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't. I don't think that leaves a mark. <laughs> I think it leaves bruising, and it and it could be blunt force trauma to the head if you because those are actually pretty heavy. If you've ever oh, picked up one you, of those, so maybe you went bruising, bruising the orange. No, I mean bruising the human body. Gotcha. So, gotcha. So, sounds like a bottom of the bargain bin pick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, appropriately so, in fact, for this episode, because that's kind of what we're going to be talking about. But the thing is, I've always been kind of fascinated with slasher flicks where they use an unusual instrument as their killing weapon of choice. Hmm. And maybe an orange or oranges is one of the craziest things. But I will say... And again, this is not a judgment because I haven't finished watching it, but uh, it it gets pretty wacky and silly and as far as horror comedy goes. But what you can do, it's actually streaming for free on YouTube. It's a pretty good copy. I mean, it's like high definition. I think they just put it up there to try to get some attention. Look for Orange Man Screener. You can watch the entire film, which is an hour and 36 minutes on YouTube if you want to check this out. So, okay. <laughs> like I say, I've gotten about halfway through it so far, and uh, I may or may not be getting back around to it to finish it. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. Written and directed by Stephen Folker. I just thought I would ask you guys about that. You intrigued? Are you going to watch that, you think? Um, I guess at some point. I don't know that it's going to move up to the top of the queue, but I'll probably <laughs> see it at some point, yeah. Okay. All right, well, now that that's out of the way, guys, let's talk about the concept for tonight's episode. Um, It is Frankensteinian, which means we bring together a lot of weird, just random elements, but 
If you've been listening to horror movie podcasts for a while, then you'll know um, that one of my favorite episodes or is episode 40. And can you believe, side note, that was 48 shows ago. Wow. That's pretty amazing. It does not seem that long ago. It just sneaks up. But when I recorded my um, 1,800-mile horror travelogue where I stopped at gas stations across the country along Interstate 80 and reported on the various horror movies that I found there at their $5 bargain bin racks. And so tonight's concept is kind of related to that because I know I got two Schlockmeister co-hosts here who are good at finding (laughs) little gems. So I I challenged my buddies uh, for each of us. All of us would bring two horror movies to the table tonight that we could review and uh, here are the stipulations. We were looking for movies that um, are probably obscure, you know, lesser known, maybe things you haven't heard of before. And they had to be a horror movie that we ended up blind buying, just purchasing, never having seen it before. And the reason we did this rash, <laughs> rash move was because of either the cover, you know, the cover art we really liked, or the title was just really tempting or both, and so we bought it sight unseen. And so that's why we're calling this episode something along the lines of six blind buy horror movies whose title and or box art made us purchase them. But I'm sure Josh could come up with something more clever than that. But I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so here's how we'll play this little game, guys, just so you know. Here, here's the information. Uh, when, I want you to tell us where you were when you found this movie title, because that's kind of interesting, and and what the title of the film is and why you chose it. Was it something about the artwork or the title? You know, what made it so tantalizing? And then go ahead and review it for us and give us your ratings and recommendations. How's that sound? Sounds awesome. good. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, I was going to go first, but I feel like I've been talking too much as it is. So I'm going to kick it over to the Wolfman, Josh Legary. What is your first pick, sir? Okay, my first film. Now, I have to say, I don't watch movies that I don't think I'm going to like as much as you, Jay. Um, <laughs> I know that you're really into just watching everything and trying trying everything, and it's important to you that you see every horror release, and I'm much different than that. I I consider myself a bit of a film connoisseur. I, I search out classic films and films that I... I usually think I'm going to enjoy going in watching. If I see a trailer for something that looks and it looks bad to me, I'm just not going to probably ever see that until I hear that it's a good film. And so I, we have a different approaches to cinema. And so oftentimes uh, I like the idea of the stopping at a gas station to look for a film, but it's rare that I actually pick one up because I don't want to waste the money in the shelf space a lot of the time. And there's one thing in my life that keeps me buying these strange movies I'd never heard of. And that is my uh, fledgling attempt at screenwriting. And so when I am working on a script and I see a film that might be in the wheelhouse of what I'm trying to work on, uh, I want to get every single movie that's ever existed of that style of film so that I can know nice. uh, what's been done. So I'm not copying anything so that I, there's something great. Oh. I can copy it. So um, that's kind of my background with the bargain bin and both of the films I'm going to talk about are both related to projects that I'm either currently working on or at one time was working on as a screenplay. And the first one is probably the more obscure of the two 
It's a 1954 film by Lee Wilder and is called The Snow Creature. And (laughs) as you guys know, I'm obsessed with The Abominable Snowman. And I have an Abominable Snowman uh, screenplay that I've been tooling around with for years. And it's something that, you know, if I ever kind of get a chance to make a bunch of <laughs> horror movies. This is one that I'm going to pull out and, and actually finish at some point. But, uh, you know, I was trying to find every good Bigfoot and Abominable Snowman movie out there, and there really aren't that many. And then one day, I was in Beaver, Utah, and uh, <laughs> that's just south of Fillmore, mm-hmm. and I was driving from Las Vegas to Salt Lake City, and, and I, I'm in Beaver, and I, I see this bargain bin of movies and I'm looking through it and it's a lot of the time it's the same typical crap. It's yes. usually like semi new releases yes. of movies you didn't want in the first place. Right. And that's why they were left at the video store. No one picked it up. Right. <laughs> but then I see it, the snow creature. And I, I couldn't <laughs> believe my eyes and it said on it, half man, half monster. Yes. Oh, I have got to own this. And so I pull it out and I'm looking at it and I, I, I just don't recognize anything I'm seeing. And the, the images on the back of the case are so poor quality. They're pixelated on the back of the DVD case. <laughs> and I just thought, Oh, I don't know. This, this can't be good. But when I start reading about it, yeah, it's a, it's American scientists on an expedition through the Himalayas. Uh, they, they're looking for a Yeti. And I, okay. I've got to get it. It's 1954. It's black and white. It looks like it was shot on super eight. I mean, it's crazy. And the transfer is terrible. The transfer is just like, it looks like someone is projecting super eight on the wall. And then they're recording (laughs) that with a video recorder. That's what the, that's what the transfer is like on this. What a crime. Why isn't this in a criterion collection yet? (laughs) because it is one of the most stilted it's just one of the worst movies i've ever seen Uh, it's just the most obvious version of a creature feature everything happens that you think would happen they're on an expedition in the himalayas it starts snowing they have to duck into a cave oh what do they find they bring it back to california it immediately escapes and terrorizes the city and it's just uh it's just a fun and funny to laugh at movie. It is one of the worst creatures I've ever seen in a movie. It looks like (laughs) I had an Ewok costume when I was in elementary school. It was right around the time. I might've even been in preschool. It's right around the time return of the Jedi came out. I was in preschool. Like 83, right? And yeah. And my mom made me this beautiful Ewok costume um, with just like the cheapest fake fur cloth that you can get at the, fabric store right the head was awesome like i really looked like an ewok but the body was just this flat furry nothing of a of a costume (laughs) right and we were (laughs) trick-or-treating and i went to my aunt's house to go trick-or-treating with my cousins and my aunt said no that that head that mask it's dangerous you won't be able to see out of the eye holes so you can't wear that trick-or-treating so she made me leave the the really cool looking ewok head at her house the best part um, yeah, I just walked around with my normal little five-year-old head and this furry little body. And every house I went to, people are like, wait, what are you supposed to be? And it was just so disheartening as a, as a little kid who was so excited about their costume oh. previously. Yeah. But that's exactly 
It's exactly what this creature looks like. It looks like my five-year-old costume <laughs> that I have. I mean, it looks like that same crappy fur that was bought, you know, from the bargain bin in a fabric shop. And it's just one of the worst horror creatures ever. When it escapes, right? When the creature finally escapes for the first time, it attacks this guy. It doesn't even kill him. It like kind of strangles him, and he's like, ah, and he falls over. And you think you assume he's dead. The creature runs out into the city and they come back to that guy and he's giving a report to the police about what happened. Like that, this is our creature. We're so scared. It doesn't even kill the first guy that was holding him captive. And so, yeah, I mean, it's um, not the best horror movie. It doesn't add much to, to the genre. I mean, one of my all time favorite films is the hammer films version of the abominable snowman. And this is like the D list version of that film. So (laughs) So, how much did this cost you down there? Uh, this was, I think, about four ninety nine. I'm sure it had been there forever. I'm sure no one had ever intended to buy this right. until, I, until I came around. I, I think I know the very spot that you stopped at. It was a gas station spot, right? Right. It's, yeah. it's got a giant rocking chair you can sit in. Right. I think I, yeah, <laughs> I've been there. Oh, that's so cool. I, I wish I would have seen the snow creature there. I know. Darn it. Next time I go through there, because we go to Vegas every once in a while, and when I'm down in Beaver, I'm going to look for the snow creature. So it sounds like you don't recommend it, though, but I want to see what your costume looked like. So I'm kind of tempted. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's one way to see it for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I don't know what I would, if I would uh, even be able to rate this. It's probably a two. Um, it's not helped by again just the terrible sound and picture quality. The sound is awful. I mean, it's just the entire time. Yeah, it's one of those movies where it shows you and tells you everything twice. So you see the creature escape, and then we go and we hear the guy interviewed, and he he re-explains everything we've already seen in the previous scene, and then another guy is coming. He's like. Hey, fill him in on what happened when he gets here. And I was just thinking, oh no, they're gonna say this, they're gonna tell us everything again. <laughs> now, <laughs> now that has to do with a couple things, right? When that happens in a film like this, and it's like uh it, it's almost like poor editing, obviously, and it's almost like the director was really trying to make sure that he had enough coverage of all the scenes to patch together the story. And it's almost as if the editor get didn't get the memo that yeah, you can cut out the redundancy. Yeah. Or or they were just trying to fill time because they realized, hey, this thing's only about like thirty minutes of actual material. Yeah. Well, the whole the whole movie is only sixty nine minutes long in the version that it is. So yeah, if you were to cut out all the redundancies, you'd be down to about forty minutes. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> That's that sounds kind of horrendous. Okay, so so Josh is saying the snow creature from nineteen fifty four. Is a two uh-huh. out of ten, and I assume that's an avoid, Josh. Is that right? Buy it, buy it, <laughs> buy it if you're ever Beaver, Utah. <laughs> it's cool that you said Beaver, Utah, because that actually has its very own film history, right, Josh? Oh, that's right. If you guys have not seen the Beaver trilogy, try to track it down. There's actually a new documentary called The Beaver Trilogy Part Four, which is excellent. And it's kind of a Cliff Notes version of actually watching the Beaver trilogy, which in itself is a difficult and challenging experience. I would recommend the documentary first. And then if you're still interested, search out uh, the original trilogy. But um, <laughs> And that was, and the trilogy was shot in, in Beaver, Utah, right? Or at least the first part of it was. 
Is that the correct? The original was shot there, correct. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's awesome. Not horror, though, right, Josh? Not per se. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty emotionally horrific, for sure. I mean, it, yeah. it goes to some very dark places. <laughs> okay. Well, thank not, you, Josh. No, not, not strictly horror. You, you did a great job. That's exactly what I was looking for in this episode. I love stuff like that. And I loved your story of why you ended up choosing it. So that makes sense. I can see how you would be beguiled into buying the snow creature. <laughs> okay. So, Dr. Shock, what is your first pick for the night? Okay. My first pick of the night, uh, this is a movie that I found at my local FYE. And it was in the, the discount section. And they have a U section, um, you know, where people have brought in movies and, and, you know, you can pick them up cheaper. And I always peruse there because I usually find some, um, you know, really good stuff in that area. Um, and I found this one there and it was really the title that, uh, sort of caught my attention. And I had to, I said, you know what, I, I got to bring this home and I got to watch it immediately. <laughs> and I actually brought it home that day and I even covered it on the blog that day. As a matter of fact, it is probably the most memorable, um, it, it's the most memorable experience I had with the blog because I was sitting at my computer, my, my laptop typing away. I typed out the entire review and it was about 10 o'clock at night. And then something happened where I did want to do like a copy, paste, whatever. Uh-oh. I accidentally did a cut. I said, oh, it's okay. And I went to paste it, and it was not there. And when I went Ooh. back to the page, it had automatically, like, resaved itself as blank. Oh, no. I, I had to write the entire thing out again. Oh. <laughs> it was the only time I've ever had to do that. Um, and, and the whole time, I don't know what happened. I don't know why it wasn't there when I did the cut. I have, Unless I just hit backspace and i thought i did cut you know one of those things yeah but anyway to the movie it's from 1989 incredibly low budget film called oversexed rug suckers from mars oh, wow. nice. <laughs> and the tagline is you'll never trust your vacuum cleaner again oh sweet all right this is about as low budget as you can get it almost you get the feeling of like some college friends getting together and make it a movie is what this seemed like, you know, just to, just to, just, yeah, just to have a little bit of fun. Um, the whole, the whole plot is, um, uh, they're saying that basically life on the planet, planet earth was started by Martians and they've been away for like millions of years. So what happens is they return to earth one day and they want to check on what they call the human experiment. And what they find is the place is a mess. You know, they, they left it up to man and man has made a mess of things. Uh, they really made the planet look, you know, they, it's, it's looked like a, they, they land in like a back alley and there's trash everywhere and they're just not, they just don't like. So what they decide to do is they're going to crossbreed man with a vacuum cleaner to clean up. Wow. That way they, we could clean up earth. Well, what they do is they give <laughs> oh, sort of this one vacuum cleaner, they give this one vacuum cleaner like uh, sentient, they make it, they bring it to life. Unfortunately, the vacuum cleaner they brought to life is in, turns out to be an angry rapist that goes around raping men and women. Uh, and that's really what, uh, what the movie, that's what a lot of the movie you know, has to do. Um, from that point on, it's what it's about. Um, just to give you an idea, the scene where the, the uh, aliens come down, now it's stop motion, 
and it's done with clay. They really sort of just look like sort of globules moving around, except you notice that they're, it's a male and a female, and they're anatomically correct. So oh. other than like being just sort of globules of clay, they have the parts, all the working parts. <laughs> right. Well, they happen to land next to a vagrant who's passed out in the street. And the one little male clay gob- globule comes out of the ship and decides he's got to go to the bathroom. So he urinates into an empty gin bottle lying next to the vagrant. The vagrant's obviously an alcoholic. <laughs> um, and urinates into the bottle. I see where this so, is so going. <laughs> one of the first things we get to see is is the you know the the is is a small bit of clay taking a leak. Uh, and then from there, yes, of course, you know, the, the vagrant wakes up. But, of course, before he takes a swig from the bottle, he lo- rolls over and he farts. That's then things true. start getting a little childish from there out. Um, you have a scene in this where, trying to look at, like, the, the name. Okay, I mean, you have, like, the, 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 it definitely aims low. The, 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 the humor aims low, and even then it doesn't always, you know, it, it, it still doesn't always hit the mark. Uh, even though it's it's like they're just throwing anything out there. Um, there's a, you have this guy Tom. Um, he he's a peeping Tom, of course, named Tom. And you have several scenes of him watching his neighbor through the window. But he gets his comeuppance because he's one of the first ones raped by the vacuum cleaner. And they show the cord like sliding along the ground and so forth and so on. Um, yeah, this one really shoots. This one, I, I think, what it is, is that. Uh, it's not a good movie, okay? It's not something that I would recommend people check out. Um, was it, you know, there were some things about it that I thought were kind of neat. Like when they first show the vacuum cleaner coming to life, they frame it against the rising sun like the monolith in 2001 A Space Odyssey. They even have like that also Sprock Zarathustra playing, um, you know, things like that. But it's not a good movie, okay? It, it looks pretty, it looks pretty cheap. The director, from what I understand, I was looking through the notes in this, he shot it in houses that he was house-sitting for at the time. People <laughs> were paying him to watch their house, and he basically shot his movie in their house oh, no. while they were away. Um, Josh, was, is that legal? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was living out of his van at the time. The first thing they bought, uh, the first bit of expenditure for the movie was they, they bought the vacuum cleaner for a dollar from some used, you know, someplace used. Um, so it's about as low budget as you can get. Uh, it was the humor. It's, it's very, very crass, very crude. Um, but how can you pass up something called oversexed rug suckers from Mars? Oh, I couldn't. no way. And so that would that would be my first one. And I feel like I said, I found that on the FYE uh bargain shelf <laughs> well a couple of things when you said how could you pass it up a couple of things i found at least according to imdb trivia it was one of only three movies rejected by the makers of mystery science theater 3000 tv show and i suspect really <laughs> yeah i suspect wow, it was that, and they accepted manos hands of fate right yeah so i mean i wonder if the content put them off but i mean who knows like oh yeah it probably did i they would have a hard time with some of this stuff on TV, and I know they edit the movies, you know, for that show. There wouldn't be much left editing this one down. Yeah, and then the the writer director uh, Michael Paul Girard. I, I guess mm-hmm. this was his feature film debut in 1989. Oh, wow. But then after that, it looks like, uh, according to his IMDb filmography, he went on to a um, 
a softcore porn career, it looks like, or something like okay. that. <laughs> well, you warm up with vacuum cleaners, you move on to people. <laughs> well, that's right. So what do you rate this oversexed <laughs> rug suckers from Mars, Dave? Ooh, I, I can't really go much higher than like a two and a half <laughs> okay. out of ten. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where when you hear, you read the, you read the synopsis and you hear the title and you're like, I got to check it out. It's one, it's one, of, it's like, it's like one of the, the curiosity is going to be there regardless of a rating, I think. <laughs> right. Um, but I would say 2.5 and I will say avoid cause I don't want anyone coming back to me saying, how could you recommend this thing? So, yeah, well, this reminds me, I mean, I can see where this episode is going so far and and i think this brings up a great discussion point here which is you know let's talk about kind of the the pattern that we saw of like the titling of exploitation cinema like mm-hmm. particularly like in the 70s it's almost as if i mean this is my understanding of it they had um a terrible film but the marketing department out of desperation needed to attract people to this film somehow and so they just come up with a really salacious title that they mm-hmm. thought would sell it well and get people in the theater for it. I mean, it comes down to that, right? Is it that simple? It can be. I mean, back then with a lot of the movies, they would sometimes change the title based on the venue where it's playing. They would change it from from town to town sometimes. Um, I know that uh, there's a movie that uh, Jack Hill had directed, and, and I, I had gotten the, um, the DVD. It was... Uh, um, Quentin Tarantino put it out in his Rolling Thunder label when he was putting out a lot of exploitation and, and even some art house movies on this label. And he was re-releasing them, you know, here uh, in the States, you know, giving them a theatrical release and putting them on DVD. God, I'm going back. This must be like 13, 14 years ago at this point. But there's a movie called Switchblade Sisters. And that was Jack Hill had, had directed it. And it oh, was okay. originally it was originally called Jezebels. That was the name of the title. But everywhere it played it didn't do well. It, nobody went to see this movie and they came to the conclusion it must have something to do with the title, you know, because Jezebel was the name of a Betty Davis movie, a very popular Betty Davis movie from, um, you know, back in the 40s or whatever. So they decided to change the title to Switchblade Sisters. Well, right before they did that, they had one more booked venue as Jezebel's. And all of a sudden it plays great. People are seeing it, it makes a lot of money. By yes. the next town, they've changed it to Switchblade Sisters and it goes in the tank again. Like nobody goes to see it again. So they would do that. I mean, that's why when you look at some of these movies on IMDb and you look up, you know, you look up at the release date and it tells you the also known as. Right. Some of these things have like eight, nine titles listed for them. Oh, that's interesting. Right. Wow. What a trick. <laughs> so, yeah. It's like, I don't know. For me as a creator of that, like I'm a songwriter, not a filmmaker, but like the titling was always very important to me. I don't know about you, Josh, but like I had a a real passion for what the title was because I felt like that was an important part of the work. But I mean, mm-hmm. did that ever influence you, Josh? What like what if? But what were your wrestles with titles or not? I mean, for me, definitely with film projects, that's been the absolute worst thing. And <clears throat> the last two films I've done. I've been really unhappy with the titles and I just struggle and struggle, struggle with it. And I'll have these like meetings where we'll put like a hundred titles up on a whiteboard and I'll just pull my hair out and I'm like pulling out dictionaries and, and every magazine that's ever been written on the topic and like looking for catch like phrases. And I mean, it drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So 
it, do you do you agree with like the concept of someone just putting whatever title, slapping it on their movie just to try to sell better? Uh, do you think that's selling out, or do you think um, that's I mean, reasonable? Yeah, to me, it's just whatever the best title is, right? So, um, "Live That Repeat" or whatever, like that's a cool title. Um, that's better. That tagline was better than the movie, and so I was okay with them putting that on Edge of Tomorrow because. <laughs> That, that's a better title. Switchblade Sisters <laughs> is a much cooler title than Jezebel's, in my opinion. So no, I agree, and I, I thought you know I, I like that better myself. I think it's, uh, I think it's a much better title. Um, but you know, but it's also a lot of times back in the day, and and they made a joke about this in the movie Ed Wood, um, where you know Ed Wood goes into into direct uh, take the what was it the Christine Jorgensen story or something like that the person you know the first sex change operation and he walks into this this low budget producer um and he's telling about the movie and ed wood goes is there a script and the producer goes no but we have a poster <laughs> right you know so a lot of times that's what they would do they would start with like okay here's what we want they'd start with a title before yes. they even knew anything from there they would start with a title or they'd make a poster up and say okay start here i think I read somewhere that the Sci-Fi Channel still does that. I bet. You know yeah, where they come surprising. up with it. <laughs> yeah, they they come up with an idea and say, "Okay, go build a movie," and they give the writers like so much time to put something together. Yeah, you can almost even kind of see that, right? Because right. the title is yeah. like the best thing. I mean, usually the poster. Like Mega, Mega Piranha. I gotta say, as crappy as Mega Piranha is, I just crack up every time I watch that movie. First off, it's got Greg Brady in it. Mm-hmm. So how can you go wrong with that? But the scene, there's a guy laying on his back, kicking these fish back into the ocean as they're jumping out of the ocean. It's just, it's, it's, it's a riot, but it's played so seriously. Um, but you know, a lot of those times, a lot of the times those sci-fi channel, they just all sort of, I don't know. They sort of run into each other after a while. Right. I know the producer of Sharknado is a listener of this podcast. So mm-hmm. if you're out there listening Send us a, a tweet or an email about your your uh, title seeking process because yeah, I'd, I'd be interested. Figure it out. <laughs> I'd be interested. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not just saying this because the producer listens to the show, but there's a part of me that kind of likes Sharknado. I have to be honest. Oh, absolutely. And, and I and I showed that I showed that to my son, and he loved it. So you know, <laughs> you those, are, those are fun. They, they can be. They can be fun movies. They they can be fun movies. You know. Come on, Josh. You got to break them in somehow, right? I mean, but that's the perfect version of we've got this crazy title. Let's see what kind of movie we can come up with it, for it. It is. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Now, I think, and this will lead into my my first pick here. I think the only real offense to changing the titles around is if the title has absolutely nothing. You know, it doesn't show up in the movie. The movie has nothing to do with the title itself. It's almost like they just slapped the title on as an afterthought. Then that really bothers me because then it's almost like a bait and switch or false advertising or something like that. And so that's I, I agree with you, but think about if you came up with a better title later, you'd want to have a you'd want to have a little bit of a do over. You'd want a mulligan on that because <laughs> there are so many just bland titles that make their way to the movie theaters and um and that's worse to me. I'd much rather end up with Switchblade Sisters, even if it was not the path, you know, the desired path to get to there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I guess, I mean, ideally, uh, one always likes to think that one would not put a bland title out there, but I guess it happens. And yeah. maybe in that case, if you could 
if you could just put one, insert one little tiny scene somewhere <laughs> to, to work it out, but maybe it's too late. I see what you're saying, Josh. That's well, sometimes the most descriptive title isn't the, isn't a word that you liked. I mean, this okay. Let me just, let me just use my own personal example. I'm even embarrassed to say this because I hate the title so bad. But I did this documentary that's in post-production right now, and it's about uh, a comedian as at the center of it, and it's about nutrition, right? And he's trying to lose a bunch of weight. Mm -hmm. So the title over and over and over again that we kept coming to was Gut Buster because it worked on the weight loss portion of what the movie's about, and it worked on the comedic version of it. And the comedy. I actually like that. But I hate the sound of it. I hate the word gut. That doesn't sound good. It's not like I don't want to ever say like, oh, that's the director of Gutbuster over there. Like that's not something I want associated with my life. But that's just reality. That's what the name of my movie is, you know? So I just am living with right. that. Well, uh, uh, the only thing I could take some solace out of was maybe back in the day when there were uh, video stores on the new release wall, be right next to the new Ghostbusters movie. Like that's the only. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. There you go. <laughs> they might think it's like a, a, a sequel or a spinoff or something and they might rent it just for that. But Josh, as a guy who fancies himself a film critic, I have to say, I appreciate that title. I think that's very clever that it works on Absolutely. both, both I angles. Think it, I think it I think it works too. See, and, yeah, I mean, and Dave's a real film critic and he likes it. See? So that's my thing is like, we <laughs> spent so many hours trying to come up with the name that we wanted. And, and ultimately that was the most descriptive, even though to me, that's not music to my ears, you know, like that's not, right. I get you. <laughs> that's an excellent example. When is that releasing Josh? Cause I genuinely, I've, I've heard you talk about making this film for a while. I really want to see it. When, can we it's see it? It's been in post-production for a year, okay. uh, which is not unusual for a documentary, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know. It should be done soon. Okay, sweet. Let me nice. know. And I promise not to review it if you don't want me to. I don't know. I'd probably hate to have my friends review my movies if I were a filmmaker. But There are certain films, um, projects that I've worked on. There's a project I'm working on right now that is something I'm really proud of. It's a passion project. And there are other projects I've done that I did just straight up because I have a family and I want to make some money. And Gutbuster is one of those projects. So honestly, I would be happy if nobody ever saw it. I wouldn't care one way or the other. I don't make any extra money if they do watch it. And it's not really my cup of tea. But, you know, if you want to watch it, you can. I'd love to. Okay. I will will be looking for it. And uh, maybe it'll be one of these things that I pick up somewhere because I like the title. <laughs> so clever. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> here here we go. Here's my first one. So guys, my it probably my all-time favorite store in the world is located in Las Vegas. Okay? And um I know where you're going with this. <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah, like Las Vegas is like about 6 hours from me. I'm not your typical Vegas goer. Okay, let's just say, because I don't, you know, there are certain things that I don't do just because of my lifestyle choices. Like I don't drink alcohol, just, you know, it's always been a choice of mine. And then I don't go to like, you know, strip clubs or anything like that. So somebody might say to me, "Uh, why do you like to go to Vegas then? Right. (laughs) Nor do I, I don't gamble either. So it's like, well, why, why is this guy in Vegas? And I go to Vegas so I can visit Zia Record Exchange. ZIA <laughs> record exchange and I especially there are more of these this is actually a chain but I like to go to the one located at 4225 South 
Eastern Avenue, Las Vegas, Nevada. If anybody lives near there, then you probably already know about it. But if you're ever visiting Vegas, make sure you go in this place. I love this place. It's like FYE, but way cooler to me because it's got less of the corporate storefront and it's more of an arty kind of like, it's like a blend between arty, hipster, grunge, like geek den of things that you love. Like they've got a tremendous film collection and a huge horror. <laughs> we'll go, we'll go ahead. Music and video stores used to be before everything disappeared and went cor- and or went corporate. It was just yeah. nice. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Like for example, let me just, and this is, this, this episode is brought to you by Zia Record Exchange. But no, no, seriously, like I love this place because they got like, um, I'm not a toy collector. Nothing wrong with it. Just saying. They got like really unusual toys in there, like action figures and things like that are thematically related to films and television shows, stuff like that that you couldn't find elsewhere. You'd have to order it online nowadays. They got a good selection of that stuff. They have tons of movies, tons of music, including like vinyl records and it's just a fantastic place but anyway i always go in there because i love their horror section it's fantastic and in my experience you can find things there that you a lot of times can't find other places obviously and so when i'm in there i do i take i take some extra money down there and i even though i'm not a huge collector of films per se Every once in a while, I'll see something. I'm like, oh, I got to see I gotta see this movie because this isn't streaming on Netflix and you can't find this anywhere. And so the first one, one of the first ones um, that I want to tell you about here is a movie called The Turnpike Killer from 2009. And this is a <laughs> horror flick. And if you, um, if you look it up, I mean, uh, it, it's the title that sold me. So I'll just tell you that right now. But... Um, the cover still kind of has, uh, uh, let's see, a, a rest stop dead ahead kind of flavor to it. So if you look it up on IMDb, you know, it's not too bad as far as that goes. And, oh. and this is, I'll just tell you right up front right now, just so everybody knows this, this is one of these films where they, even though they call this person the turnpike killer, because I guess these uh, murders happen on the somewhere along the New Jersey Turnpike it's not like he's on the side of the road you know waiting for people or rest stops or something like that so honestly the title is not really related to it i mean he could have been called any kind of killer not just turnpike killer so that's kind of disappointing and then like on the cover you see like a sledgehammer or a big... I see that. He's looking at some girl hitchhiking here. Yeah, and the, like, uh, honestly, I, I don't... At least I don't recall a scene like that from the film. I just watched it the other night. <laughs> and, 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 and I was, you know, because I would hate to review this and people were like, it's got that scene right in it. And I, I'm... Mm-hmm. You know how like you're fairly certain you stayed awake the whole time? And I really believe I did. But, you know, I, I won't swear to it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was awake, but you know, I, you know, who knows, but I don't remember a scene of that nature. And, okay. and so th- this leads me to my next point, which is a lot of times films like these that we're discussing end up being not just low budget, but I've heard it referred to as micro budget. Our friend Bill Shetty calls them that. And, sure. and th- this is, um, 
a micro budget type of film. And I would actually call this, um, this is me trying to coin more phrases that don't need to be coined <laughs> in the horror community, but, but I would actually call this like basement horror. And what I mean by basement horror is you got these, you got these guys, a lot of times it's guys. Okay. But in this case it is, you got these guys who dig horror films and they go down in somebody's basement and just film it there. You know, it's just like filmed at somebody's house. And that's exactly the flavor of this movie. Now, I got to compliment this film on something, a couple things. First of all, obviously it's a slasher flick. So classic slasher. You could tell that these dudes love slashers. The, um, The guy who plays the killer, it's not a mystery. Like it shows his face and everything. Um, the guy, the actor's name is Bill McLaughlin and his, his character name in the film is John Beast, B-E-E-S-T. And he is this big hulking dude. And the whole time, I bet you this guy's like six, 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 seven, extremely muscular. I mean, he, he looks like he could have been a professional wrestler in the face. He kind of looks like Channing Tatum a little bit, um, but I, I, the whole time I'm looking at this guy's, you know, physique and I'm thinking, this guy could do anything with his life, I feel. <laughs> I was just feeling resentment because he's in such good shape. And I'm not saying that this movie was a bad, a bad choice for him, but I'm like, look at that guy's muscular, powerful, healthy body. It really bothers me. But anyway, he makes a great killer. <laughs> That's a little bit of Jay of the Dead, like revealing too much on the podcast once yeah. again. But no, in all seriousness, this kill, like he makes a great killer, just really formidable. Um, not the best actor, you know, really, because it, it feels like a lot of the lines in this, a lot of the dialogue seem to be improvised. It's it's almost as if the directors were like, okay. The scene goes like this, kind of just go with it. And, you know, so there's a lot of repetition. It reminds me of how in the Blair Witch Project, the characters kind of just scream back and forth at each other. And these characters say a lot of the same things. And you can kind of tell he's reaching and just trying to say things, but he ends up saying the, the same things over and over. So in that regard, you know, it's not great. The performances aren't great, but what it is pretty freaking amazing for the budget on this thing is this is a very gory film like the kill scenes are disturbing um they will trouble you i think i mean it's like it's more toward the extreme level um of horror and it's pretty graphic so and and for the the gore effects i mean it's all practical effects and they did a pretty good job so you can tell that um the dudes that made this they wrote and directed evan Macrosianus and Brian Weaver, you can tell that they they really appreciate horror. They've seen a lot of horror. In fact, on the DVD, there's an interview with some guy from Fangoria. So they obviously caught Fangor- Fangoria's attention. So they got that in there. And and you know, like in the trivia I was reading, they use real pig guts. You know, for one of the scenes where somebody gets disemboweled, and that's pretty pretty horrific and gross and um you know it's it's very low budget it looks like it's made at people's houses it doesn't really have a lot to do with a turnpike or a killer or anything and like in this one place where he keeps victims there's like a sign that has like marker written on it that says victims cabin 
And it's like, okay, well, we really didn't need that because we got it. it it's obviously a victim's cabin. But, you know, so so the editing is pretty rough in this. Um, some of the, the, the sound effects, like the Foley, is not great. But honestly, the reason to see this is it has a documentary-style feel to it. So it almost looks like, because it's just filmed at people's houses, it almost looks like a snuff film where somebody was actually filming real life stuff. And because the, the, the killings are pretty graphic, it has a degree of verisimilitude to it that you can't really deny. So I have to say, um, even though I give it a 4.5 out of 10, and that's all for the execution of the, the, the gore and the killer himself, I, I, I still call it a, you know, a low priority rental, but I think it's worth checking out. And that is the turnpike killer from 2009. Any questions about that one? No, it sounds interesting. I got to tell you that that cover did look pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it it has that that rest stop dead ahead look to it a little right. bit. So right. I kind of dig that. So, all right. I just wanted to back you up on Zia Records. You turned me on to Zia Records and I every time now I've gone to Las Vegas, I've stopped there and I went in and perused their vinyl records and their you know, DVDs. And I, I remember I was listening to our listener recommendation episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you just posted it and I was listening back to it to see how it turned out. And I ended up going in there and buying Alucarda and Martin, uh, George Romero's Martin. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. They, they sell that. That sounds like an awesome place just from those two titles alone. And they yes. would have those on the shelf. They do. And I bought the new Rancid record there as well. So They do. Yeah, so if listeners are in the Las Vegas area, like our friend Bill Shetty, or anybody else, like if, if you've been, if you've had Zia Records experiences, or you've worked there, or, or whatever, just, I want to geek out about Zia Records. So leave it in the comments, tell us about it, tell us the movies you found there, you purchased there, because I freaking love that place. So That's awesome. All right, thanks for backing me up, Josh. And now... Wolfman Josh, what is your next pick? I'm dying to hear it. Okay, my next movie is called Cannibal Killer Clowns on Dope. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, it's actually not. I, I lied because I'm I'm ashamed of my other pick because I didn't realize how deep you guys were going with these. So <laughs> um, wait, wait, Josh, we gotta copyright that now and get that oh, it's URL. A real movie. That's a real movie. Oh no. is it? Oh yeah. Well, let me. Tagline for that one is blood, gore, guts, clowns, and naked girls. And naked is spelled N E K K I D. (laughs) I got it. I got it. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So, is this, this looks like it's on Amazon, I guess? Like, (laughs) I don't know. It came up in the other images when I searched the Turnpike Killer. So, (laughs) (laughs) that's great. Naked. I love that. Yeah. my, My other pick is not. So obscure. I don't know how popular this film is, but you know, it's one that I had seen out there for a long time. It was just one of those movies where you're just like, yeah, no one ever rented this or bought this when it was for sale previously viewed, and somehow it just made it into this store. And I, I had seen it for years and years. It's like a typical bargain bin movie for me. It's called The Forsaken, and it's a vampire movie from 2001. And it has an alternate title. The alternate title is Desert Vampires. There you go. 
Nice. <laughs> so, you know, we're on the right track there. Right. Um, it was written and directed by a guy named J.S. Cardone, who, if you guys don't recognize that name, he was the screenwriter of Puppet Master, and he also wrote The Covenant and The Prom Night remake. So he's done some big stuff, but he hasn't directed as much. And this was one of his bigger directorial films, The First Second. Okay. And it's got a pretty recognizable cast for most people. I don't watch any of the shows these guys are on, so I didn't recognize them. Uh, the kind of main character is Brendan Fur, Fair. Yeah, Fair. And uh, yeah. people who watch Roswell would recognize him as Michael. He's in 61 episodes of Roswell. Apparently, he's also in Final Destination, but I did not recognize him from Final Destination. <laughs> um, and he also is in Guardians of the Galaxy and X-Men First Class. Again, I don't remember ever seeing him in those, but uh, apparently he's in them. It's, uh, it's him, and he's on a road trip cross-country. And he picks up this guy, um, played by Kerr Smith, who was also in Final Destination, and in My Bloody Valentine 3D. And Kerr is, it turns out, a vampire slayer. And so he's he's really regretting picking up this random hitchhiker who it turns out is out to kill a band of partying vampires who are on the road. And the vampires are led by Jonathan Sheck, who people might recognize from the Jonah Hex TV show Legends of Tomorrow or Blue Bloods. Um Jonathan Sheck is he's just one of those like two good looking actors. He's in that thing you do. He's one of the guys in the band. Um, he's in quarantine. So the doom generation, people would probably recognize him, but he's just one of those guys where like, he's too good looking for his own good. Like he just can't be cast in anything because he takes you out of the reality of it. But in this film, he is the head vampire or so we assume. And, oh. and so Kerr and, or I guess in the in the show his name's Nick. Nick and Sean start hunting down this pack of vampires, and the movie is way better than I would have ever given it credit for. And the oh, reason nice. I I stumbled upon this one was again like finally I was I was in Los Angeles and I had been working on this vampire slayer screenplay, and I'm currently working on as one of my side projects, and I just thought. Oh, what the heck, I'll look at that. I'll pick up this Forsaken movie that I've seen a thousand times sitting over here and actually read the back of the box for once. And I did that, and it said, oh, it's about a vampire killer. I, I guess I better pick this up after all. <laughs> and so I did, and the thing that turned me off is just I hate the style so bad. One of the things I love about The Lost Boys is that awesome 80s fashion punk style. And this movie the cover just exudes like 90s grunge and i just hate that era i hate that era of <laughs> horror movies and this is 2001 and so it's just on the precipice of or just on the tail end of grunge and all that stuff and so i don't know it just really turned me off aesthetically but the actors are actually good enough and especially Kerr smith um they're good enough that it, it kind of sucks you in. And there are some cool plot moments in the film. Overall, it's not a great film, but better than I would have ever suspected. So I, this one, I would probably give a five and I would say it's a low priority rental. If you, if you see it around, I know it's on Amazon right now for two ninety nine digital rental. You could do worse. If you're really in the mood for a, a vampire hunter film, you haven't seen, I assume it was heavily influenced by the Buffy, the vampire slayer television show too. It's kind of coming 
toward the end of that series and all these characters kind of have that snarky we're hip vampires thing going on that just it just really does not appeal to me but right so it sounds like that you were kind of um i i guess so you knew from the cover you said you'd seen the cover a lot and it says the forsaken desert vampires on it so i know you dig vampires so that was kind of what got you a little curious is that what it was um yeah i think the copy that i have actually didn't say desert vampires i don't remember now not all of them do that's so that's an alternate title so some of them say desert vampires others don't and um, for whatever reason i I found myself reading the back of the dvd case uh, against my better judgment i couldn't actually find the case i was looking for it before we started recording so i could see what it actually said that finally you know got me to make that purchase at a gas station just outside of Los Angeles, uh, probably in Burbank actually, but um, I, I couldn't find the case. So, but yeah, it, it sucked me in. I would just say uh, it's not a great film, but it's better than I had anticipated. Nice. Well, I mean, you know, there aren't that many great vampire slayer films anyway. Right. So this is kind yeah. of interesting that you have another one of these picks that you could tell yeah. us about. So that's good. And especially one I hadn't you know, heard of or seen before. Yeah. That's cool. interesting. Dave, are you going to check that one out? Absolutely. I yeah. think I will. That seems like a perfect movie to review on DVD infatuation.com. It does. <laughs> yes, it does. I'm serious. <laughs> it's like four steps below John Carpenter's vampires. Oh, that, that many steps below it. Wow. Well, I would give John Carpenter's Vampires an eight, so maybe it's three steps. Yeah, I'm a, I, I'm a okay. fan of John Carpenter's Vampires, too. I know a lot of people don't like it, but I'm, I actually think it's really good. I like it, too. Speaking of Dave's DVD infatuation, Dave, I you know, I am subscribed. I don't know if the listeners realize this, but you can actually subscribe to Dr. Shock's blog. And what happens is every day when he posts his new review – it'll show up in your inbox. And so if you're like me, where you sit at work with your email open, it is a real pleasure. I think it's two o'clock my time, four o'clock PM Dave's time. I, that, that email hits my inbox at work and I'm like, Oh, let's see what movie Dave reviewed today. You know? And, and like, that's kind of a little, uh, perk to my day. So I would encourage everybody to subscribe to his, to to his blog. So you can see what he's reviewing. It's really cool, Dave. Well, thank you. Yeah, and there is a box to do that. You got to go down a little bit. I think it's uh, just a little box that says receive updates by email, mm-hmm. which is, um, and there's you can subscribe in a reader also. That's right. Um, which is below the about me section. Yes. On the right there. Well, thank you. I appreciate that uh, that little plug there. Absolutely. Okay, Dave. Um, what do you got for us? What's your second pick now? Okay, my second pick. This was not so much for the title, and this was one I was actually sent as a screener. I want to see the name of the company here. For a while there, I was getting screeners from this company. I don't even remember signing up for them, but I, I was glad I was. It was Severin, Severin Films, um, and I was getting some screeners from them. And this one just showed up in the mail one day. And after I looked at the cover, I said, oh, I got to watch this thing. It's from the 1970s, you know, which is a time period I really like. As a matter of fact, it's from 1973. They sent you a screener for the 70s? film <laughs> well it's a movie no 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 what it is is i shouldn't say a screener these are brand new dvd releases of theirs this is a company that puts out classic 
classic horror films. Oh, um, okay. Like the, this is not, yeah, this is those Severin films. <laughs> maybe not just classic. They do all <laughs> different types, but no, this is, this is a, this is like, okay. I guess I shouldn't say screener an advanced copy is oh, what it was. I got you. An okay. advanced copy of the DVD, not a screener. Nice. Um, but anyway, it's a movie from 1973. The title is very basic, but you guys take a look at it. When you pull it up, no matter where you pull it up, you're going to see this cover. It's called The Baby, and it's from <laughs> 1973. All right, directed by Ted Post, and it was the image on the cover that just got me saying, oh, I got to pop this in yes. right now. <laughs> All right. Um, what it is, is it's. There's there's a family called the Wadsworths. Okay, you have you have the mother, Mrs. Wadsworth, played by Ruth Roman, uh, who I know was in like Strangers on a Train, and uh, uh, she was in a western, I uh, think an Anthony Mann western or something. But she's you know she's had a decent enough career uh, that you'd kind of say like, oh, I wonder what she's doing in this movie. But anyway, um, she does. She, she's not married. Her husband had left. She has three children. She has two adult daughters, uh, Jermaine and Alba. And she has a baby and she's raising them all by herself. But what makes it so unusual is that baby is actually 21 years old. <laughs> yes. Baby still wears diapers, still sleeps in a crib, cannot talk, just says gaga and things like that. But he is a 21 year old, fully grown man. Yikes. And a social worker comes around. Her name is Ann Gentry. Mm. She thinks that, baby could live a perfectly normal life. She thinks it's the mother and sisters who are keeping him down. That it's not that baby is, is backward. It's that, um, you know, they're, they're keeping him in there for some reason. Uh, so what happens is she starts showing up, her and the mother start, you know, butting heads over this whole thing. She's going to try to prove that the mother and the sisters are responsible. And that's in a way where the horror starts coming in. You, you just have these showdowns, uh, but that's not the only place where the horror comes in. I mean, there you, you find out early on that it kind of is the mother and the daughters uh, who are who are doing this, that are keeping this. Like there's one scene where Baby shows a little sign of, you know, that maybe he's a little more mature. Um, you know, when the social worker's around and the mother sort of gives him a bad look and you can tell right away that the baby knows he did something wrong. It's followed by, they send Baby to his room, where one of his sisters chases him with a cattle prod, shocking him, saying, Baby doesn't talk, Baby doesn't walk. Whoa. So you get several scenes like that in, like that in this movie. Now, one of the things is, with this, um, with this subject matter, you would think that there'd be some comedy. There's not. This movie is played entirely straight. There is no comedy in this movie <laughs> whatsoever. It is just played like a straight up horror thriller. That's creepy. Uh, which it, it is, and I thought it was very interesting. You know, um, and then, it, like I said, the showdown gets a little more intense as it goes along. But one of the things I love about this is uh, the taglines. I got to read you the, the I got to read you the taglines for these. I'm just going to read each one. I think there's five of them. Okay. There's five different taglines for this. You have Horror is his formula. Okay. Pray you don't pray you don't learn the secret of the baby. Nothing in this nursery rhymes. I don't know what the hell that means. <laughs> but it sounds it sounds pretty cool. That's funny. Three, four, close the door, and there shall be mayhem wherever he goes. Ooh. Which is another interesting one because baby goes nowhere. He just stays in a crib. But anyway, it's it's an interesting bit of 70s uh you know one of those things where i don't think anybody's really heard of this i know i had never heard of this 
when it showed up. I was like, this was what really caught me off guard. And, and I was like, wow. And I'm not going to say it blew me away. It's not that kind of movie. It's not a, I'm not going to say it's a great movie, but it is interesting. And the fact that they don't play it for humor um, until the, you know what, it's, there's a little bit of an unintentional humor at the very end when you get the final reveal of, of what was going on with the social worker and such. I got to admit, I, I gave it a little, but I shouldn't have because it wasn't meant to be a funny moment. But anyway, I've known of this movie like I've, I've seen like clips or something from it. Like I've been a little bit familiar with it. It may have been from my uh, 70s horror book from John Muir or whatever. But OK, but so I'm, uh, but but this is is it creepy to see this, you know, grown man dressed like a baby and playing it straight? Like, is that kind of unsettling? Because it sounds it's- creepy. It's definitely bizarre. It's okay. definitely bizarre, especially when you start to figure out that he may not be. They don't really let on that he's not a baby in his mind, like that he acts like a baby the whole time. But you definitely find out that the the sister. What there's one really sort of disturbing scene where they get a babysitter, and it's this teenage girl, and she's watching baby, and she decides to try to breastfeed baby for some odd reason and the mother and sisters walk in on it so that gets a little intense too um there are scenes it's not what i would say a hard horror movie it's not it's soft okay it's not one that's going to keep you up at night or terrify you or anything like that it's unsettling okay there are things about it that are unsettling it's not going to frighten you like a typical horror movie would but I'd give it a six and I'd say rent it. You know, I, I think it's worth uh, it's worth checking out. You got to see the trailer. You have to watch the trailer. They're going to be, what the hell am I watching? Yeah. yeah you can. Um, and what's really interesting is that the baby was played by the producer's son. I mean, 21 year old son. That's funny. But it was played by the producer's son. <laughs> and he does a really good job. I mean, he does a fairly convincing job as a man child. Well, um, for the listeners out there, I see you can stream this on Amazon for three bucks on Amazon Video. And the other thing I was going to ask you, Dave, um, it, when when you say they they go into that a baby doesn't talk, a baby doesn't walk, when they're basically holding him down and instructing him not to progress, I wonder if that's born out of an idea. Like, it, I don't know if other parents feel this way, but sometimes you're like kind of freaked out that your kids are growing up and you want them to not grow up. And I wonder well, if there's could, a riff on that theme. It could be. I could be a long line. It's been a while since I've seen this. I mean, I've gone back like almost five years ago now that I saw this movie. But it could be that. But I think it also has something to do with the fact that they're getting money from the state or something for the baby. Oh, okay. Um, and they're, they're actually like profiting off of this. Uh, and because there, there is a social worker involved who's assigned to this case, which leads you to believe that, yes, the state is involved on some level. Um, and I think, and you don't actually see the mother or sisters working or anything like that. So, uh, you know, it, I think that it's almost like they're, they're profiting off of him too. Yeah. Which is another reason why they want to keep him, uh, the way he is. And, and it's not so much holding him down. It's, it's, it literally is the sister chasing him around the room with a cattle prod, shocking him saying baby doesn't walk baby doesn't talk that's right in the trailer you, you can see that scene right in the trailer 
Yeah, okay, cool. Now, um, I was reading the trivia. If you don't mind, I have some trivia yeah. on this. Yep, yeah. nope, go for it. Okay, so I guess David Mooney, who played the baby, you, you already said he's the producer's son. Um, mm-hmm. I, guess, I guess he spent some time observing some children with special needs in order to oh, research okay. his role for this. Interesting. And, and in the initial soundtrack, I guess, the sounds, the baby sounds, were actually made by him during filming, but... um. I guess that those were lost or something, and they later had to put in actual baby sounds with it. So that's kind uh, of interesting. And he, well, that might be why it was so convincing. Yeah. <laughs> it, did, it did sound very convincing. And, and he shaved his whole body for the role of baby, interestingly. Oh, wow. So would you do that for a role, Josh? I'm not really looking for a role, and particularly not this type of role, but <laughs> sure. I mean, <laughs> I shaved my body on a dare. <laughs> yes, you would. Uh, That's more of my alley. Would would Betty Davis shaved half her head when she played uh, Queen Elizabeth in those two? She played in two movies, I think. She actually shaved uh, the the top half of her of her uh, of her head for that for those roles. So, I guess they'll do it. Oh yeah. You know, I don't know if I shave my whole body. I'd say, you know what, I'm wearing a diaper. I don't think I got to shave every part of my body. Here. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so that's the baby. Are you going to watch that one, Joshua? Never! Uh, that You have 0% interest in that? Not the slightest. Wow, I mean, it seems like a con- conversation piece, though, at least. Yeah, I'm good. Okay, <laughs> you're like, I, I, got, I got stuff to talk about already, so. Yeah. All right. I'm following the weather, the, all the sports ball games. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, I got you. All right, guys. Well, um, in in my previous uh, pick there, I forgot to what I had done was to try to give you a little bit of flavor from these movies as I pulled like a tiny little clip of the music from them just to give you a sample. So let me let me catch up here. So the clip from the Turnpike Killer uh, sounds like this. So that that gives you a sample, right, of the production values here we're talking about. And now, yeah, and not to say anything against your review, which I thought was was great, but I would say that that music just sold me on the movie like ninety five percent more than okay. anything you said. <laughs> oh, well, good, good. So yeah, I, I I apologize for not including that earlier. So that that's going to be affiliated there with the Turnpike Killer, and I have uh, music samples here. For the next one now um so we talked about production values and this next one i also found at zia record exchange i'm sorry i don't have more you know diverse places that i found these things but the place is so cool that i found another great one that the title alone just was totally what i needed I, I and when I say needed, I needed it when I read this title because I'm like, I gotta have this, I gotta see it because this is perfect. Because because Josh, I love. Let's see, what do you call it? Like Southern Gothic, right? You know, like mm-hmm. like I love like basically hillbilly horror because <laughs> I I hail <laughs> I hail from West Virginia, and uh, you know I I think that's scary stuff, you know, so. So this Yeah, West Virginia is a scary, scary <laughs> stuff. It can be. So this one is a film 
from 2005, and it's called Motor Home Massacre. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. No. Yeah, so you're pulling up the image there. And, uh, you know, it's not a bad image. The poster art's okay. So that that looked good to me. And it's another slasher flick. <laughs> I mean, the, po- the poster doesn't look killer good, but it's okay. And, then, and here's, here's a little sample of the uh, score that's with Motor Home Massacre. Yeah. <laughs> right? Huh. So, so this nice. one, even though know, this is from 2005, you know, uh, th- this is actually a, a very modern looking film. Of the films I watched for this episode, this, I would say, is the most, um, like, up to date. It appears to have had the biggest budget. Like, the filming looks pretty good, actually. It looks pretty great. And, um, so, Motorhome Massacre. <laughs> the title. Every say. Every time I say it, I, I love it. It was. <laughs> it was written and directed by Alan Wilbanks, and it's about these seven friends. You got uh, four guys, three gals. They get in this vintage RV. It's this old school twenty six foot RV, and they they basically steal it from the parents because the parents are away on vacation, and so they take this RV into the woods for a weekend. And it's a slasher flick, so you got this psychopath out in the woods who has a machete, of course, and he's kind of dressed in black, and he has these night vision goggles on, and that's who's preying upon people out in the woods. So this does something really interesting. I mean, the way this film is is built and structured, you're like, okay, the, this... This writer-director has seen a lot of slasher flicks. He knows the formula, blah, blah, blah. Well, it opens where we see the credentials of the killer, so to speak, where we see a killing take place at a tent. There's a camper in a tent. And it reminds me a lot of the... It's obviously Friday the 13th inspired. And it reminds me a lot of the sleeping bag kill, except like, you know, the, the tent is suspended and then you've got someone trapped inside the suspended tent, and then you've got a lot of machete stabbing into the suspended tent, <laughs> right? Wow. And it's it's actually a, a pretty decent kill. And like when it opens, <laughs> you know, the film looks decent, and when it opens with this, you know, the gore isn't as impressively done, like the blood and stuff. It's it's almost I don't want to say it's hammer ish, but it, it's less real looking than what we see in the turnpike killer but still with an opening kill like that you're like okay well now now we're getting serious here so um and then it takes us back to the exposition the beginning of the story and and we see these people get together and then it has the you know they stop at the gas station type place you have the redneck there you get the harbinger of doom kind of warnings that there's a killer in the woods and so forth and etc. Well, um this thing does the weirdest <laughs> the weirdest thing. They they circle back to that beginning kill scene again as the harbinger of doom is telling about this killer in the woods. They show <clears throat> that first scene again but more in depth a little bit. So it's almost like we get like a recycled kill and I don't know if like 
you know, they ran out of budget or they were just so proud of that first one that they show it again. But it takes away some of the punch of the film, I have to say. Sure. So, you know, that that's a little bit disappointing in there. But um, yeah, the other thing I want to clarify for people is IMDb has it listed as a like a comedy horror. And I don't. I don't really consider it a comedy horror, honestly, or even a horror comedy. I mean, it has the usual, you know, annoying characters who are making jokes in the film, but it's not like silly or anything. So I think it's a pretty straight slasher as far as that goes. It does have the the cheesiest kind of weirdest ending ever. Like the way it ends and the tone of the ending is so bizarre and <laughs> And, and it's a very unconventional slasher ending as far as that goes. And um, it, it, it's just, I, I can't even, I would love to ask the director, uh, why did you end it like that? Because that's like the weirdest slasher ending I've ever seen in my life. But anyway, Motorhome Massacre is in some ways better than you would expect. In other ways, a little bit disappointing, but it's okay. I, I, I'm trying to think, guys. Something like this is hard. It's hard to come in because Turnpike Killer has a lot better kills, but, you know, not as good looking to watch. I give this a 5 out of 10. I call it a low priority rental as well. All right. Okay. So, anyway. I, I, I got to if you don't mind, Jay, there's one you you meant you you bringing this up reminded me of one. And Tell it. One I was I just going to do is I'm not going to go into it too deep, but just as a, as a, I'll say as an honorable mention. Okay. Um, and it was a movie that I found on one of those sets. You know how you get, you look at the, you look in the Walmart bin and you find those four movie sets mm-hmm. where you know you're getting four crappy movies. <laughs> totally. Um, you get them but anyway. They're like, but they're like two, three dollars. You're like, what the hell? I'll pick them up. <laughs> I'll take a look at it anyway. That's an illness. But, yeah, I love it. It is. Well, there's one from 2006 called uh, A Bothered Conscience. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's it's in the backwoods of Arkansas. Nice. And you have this guy. It's funny because the, the, the star is uh, the father of its director. It's that kind of movie. It's, it's like you see the same last names and all the credits and everything in this movie. So it was very, I mean, if this thing costs $500 to make. Okay. <laughs> right. It, it, it's a lot. But anyway, this guy is Dennis Smithers Sr. He looks just like Bill Mosley from the House of a Thousand Corpses and, and Devil's Rejects. Exactly like him, except older. Okay. He's an older version of that. Uh, he protects his land. Anybody who trespasses on it, he's going to take him out. Okay. You know, you're, if you trespass on this property, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're, you know, a, a bird watcher. If you're, uh, you know, moonshot, whatever, as soon as you step on his land, he's going to take you out. Even the sheriff. OK, uh, you're not safe <laughs> if you step on this guy's lawn, uh, yes. step on this guy's lawn, if you step on this guy's property, which is extends out into the woods and, and everything else. So plenty of woods, you know, scenes. Um, well, what happens is, you know, the, 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 the guy, the, the father himself uh, is, is off at one point. Um, so his son now has to defend the family land. But for some reason, this is where Bothered Conscience comes in. He's also dealing with all of the spirits and ghosts of those that his father have killed who are coming back seeking their revenge. Uh-oh. Okay. So the movie starts off as a slasher and ends up in supernatural territory. Now, part of the problem I had at the beginning, 
you're just getting these kills with no real uh, context. Right. It's like, here comes somebody killed. Here comes two more people who might say, oh, well, we have just come from the school killed. You know, so it's just kill, 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 <laughs> kill, kill. You get that all at the beginning. There's no like, a, no, like two guys drive up killed. Right. It's, it, there's not a whole lot of, uh, they, they don't really go into the why. They don't yeah. really be, even decide to build these characters or even make you care about them. It's just, I'm out for a straw, dead. Right. Okay. Where it really, and, but, but you know what? It's not that the kills don't work. They're somewhat gruesome. Okay. You know, in, in a low budget sort of way, um, you know, there's somebody, they're, they're pretty gruesome. Um, but where it does work is when it gets into the ghosts, these things are somewhat effective. I mean, you see them like looking in the windows. One crawls across the ground because it, it had stepped on this board and the nails went into its uh, feet when it was alive. That's how it was trapped, I think. And it's crawling across the floor to get this guy. You know, you don't know if what you're seeing is in his mind or if it's real, but it actually is a little creepy the way they put <laughs> that second part of the movie together. Right. Um, it's not, again, I'm, I'm not going to go out and say it's a good movie. I, I, I don't, I, I don't believe it is. And I'd probably as a rating, give it a four, which would just be around the maybe rented area. Okay. Cause I could see people having a lot of problems with this thing, but it does have moments that I think will get under your skin. Yeah. You know, maybe for people exactly like ghost movies. For, exactly. And it's also like you were talking about that sort of that backwoods thing. This is definitely one of them. Love it. That move this movie is set like in the, you know, deep woods of, of Arkansas. Right. Yeah, I mean this I see it's um available on Amazon for like two bucks if you want to stream. Okay. Stream this one, a bothered right. conscience. And my guess is, if you stream it for two bucks, they they will have made up half of their budget back. Oh no! Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. All right, and uh, did you have did you have any bonuses, Wolfman, that you wanted to talk about, or anything you want to mention real quick? Because I got a bonus as well. Uh, not necessarily. I you know I talked during our witchy women episode. I talked about a movie called Mark of the Witch that was actually a bargain bin movie, and I was. There, it was a double disc, too, so I was looking to see if I should talk about the other movie on that disc, but I didn't think it was up to snuff in terms of a discussion topic. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got you. Well, I, this was one that I actually um, struggled. I, was, I had like four titles, which were all from Zia Record Exchange, actually. <laughs> and, and I had these four titles, and I was torn between all of them. And so I actually... I got busy this past weekend and I, I watched them all. I had been planning to anyway and really wanting to for a long time. But so first of all, everybody's already familiar with Driller Killer, right? I mean, that's kind of yes. a class mm -hmm. from 1979 or it's classic-esque. Yep. Yeah. So everybody's familiar with that. But but the double disc with that is one called Drive-In Massacre, right? Did you Have you guys um, heard of that one before? I'm not sure. Cause I, I, I think I may have, but it's not. You know what? I, I'm not sure. Okay. I can't say for sure. So this one is, is, oh, man, on some levels. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Uh, so this would be kind of like my honorable like bonus little uh, review of this. So Drive-In Massacre is from 1977, and it's set at a California drive-in. And it's neat because... 
first of all, it has all the nostalgia of the drive-in movie. So if people out there have not had the pleasure of, you know, going to a drive-in and seeing movies that way, it's depicted in this film. Now, the film is very grainy. So like the transfer or whatever, I mean, is very kind of fuzzy. And the audio is pretty bad, especially in the beginning in some of the places, because the sound, what's it called, Josh, when when they don't do any ADR, but it's like the source sound from the, the actual set, they capture it live on set, and that's the sound. Uh, wild lines? Well, I yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever, if you just recorded your sound with the camera and that, that was your soundtrack to the movie. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's basically what it is. It's all the original audio. Yeah, it's all original audio, and this is one of those movies where, I mean, I, I've tried to make a film before, and it was awful. But, um, and so I'll just admit that up front. And what I found is when we would finally get set up and get in a location, our scenes would go on too long, right? Because we were kind of writing this on the fly. It was an absolute disaster. It's not even a real movie. But, but my, my friends and I were kind of experimenting with this. And we would be in a location and the camera would be rolling. So the, the scenes of dialogue would just go on way too long. And that's exactly what happens in Drive-In Massacre. However, I talked about slasher films where the killer has an interesting killing implement. Well, this killer uses a samurai sword and he attacks people at the drive-in. You know, he or she, when I say he, you know, you know, he or she, whoever it is. It's one of those mystery whodunit type um, you do find out, obviously, by the end who it is, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're going to think, oh, Jay of the Dead slipped when he said he, but, you know, not necessarily. Because, honestly, it doesn't <laughs> It doesn't really matter. I don't know matter. that I would have gone quite that. I don't know if I would have gone quite that far with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just tell you about the first kill. Now, the kills are few and far between in this movie, just so everybody knows, you know, right up front. I'll just admit that. But this is streaming on Prime, Amazon Prime. So if you do want to see it, and you don't have Zia Record Exchange near you. This is how. Anyway, the first kill, you got this couple in the car, right? And uh, <laughs> the guy is reaching out of his window because at the drive-in, um, they would have like a speaker outside the car and you could like, you know, turn it up and down and blah, blah, blah. Well, he's reaching his arm out of the car and there is so much build up to this. It's kind of hilarious the way this is shot. But anyway, he's got his arm and his head out of the car and slice, you see the sword, and it decapitates the guy right there. And it's pretty awesome <laughs> because oh. it looks it looks kind of decent. It's pretty convincing, actually, you know, as far as the decapitation with the samurai sword. And then and then he goes right for the and the girl screaming, so it shows a close-up of her neck, which looks terribly fake. And then it's a stab right into the neck with the samurai sword and blood is everywhere. And then, and then she falls backward out of the car. So, and then her head is kind of upside down hanging out of the car and the blood goes all over her face. It's, it's fairly effective for like a, you know, a low budget seventies slasher flick. But, uh, you know, you have to wait a long time to get to the kills and there just aren't enough kills and it kind of feels a little bit like a Scooby-Doo movie. Lots of red herrings in this. But I will give you um, a little sample of the music here. And then I'll wrap up with the rating. Here it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you 
guys loved that, didn't you? Wow. Every time you play your music, I feel like I filled this assignment. <laughs> music is nice, right? So anyway, I'm giving um, <laughs> the Drive-In Massacre, I'm going to give it also a 4.5 and call it a low-priority rental. I'm just saying... Okay, just so everybody knows, I'm call these are like basement horror films. They're micro budget for the most part. And uh, you know, not great movies, but there's something about them where you feel like you're kind of tapping into the heart of horror filmmaking. And what I mean yeah. is you got somebody with a dream who wants to make a horror film and they do it, you know? It's just like that American movie guy from that documentary, right, Josh? Absolutely. I remember okay. him? Yeah. So, I, like, oh, I, I, love that. I like that documentary. It's amazing. So, yeah, yeah if anybody Look. gets a chance to see that, it's called American Movie. It's about a guy who really wanted to make a horror film really bad. But... Speaking of titles, he makes a movie about a witch's coven called Coven. <laughs> coven, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's that's great, right? I mean, you, there, you just... He was in the... He was in a later documentary called Horror Business that yep. was talking about low-budget horror movies. He was making his second one by that time. He was probably one of the best parts of that movie, I thought. Yeah, he was interesting. He definitely was. Okay, now I didn't, I didn't, re- I'm not reviewing this one. I just want to tell you this title so you can look it up because we're wrapping up now. But I, I got to tell you some things to look up, guys. Another one that I got. Um, it actually came like, and this, this was actually, I'll tell you where I got this, Josh. <laughs> it was, so there's a, if you're in, um, let's see, like Pleasant Grove, America Fork, Utah area, and you go way up where that Walmart is, there's a gas station by it, which is near the, um, uh, let's see, Mount Tipanogos Temple. It's not too far from there. There's a gas station and they had ice cream man, <laughs> Which is looks awful, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? With um, mm-hmm. you know, Ron Howard's brother, what's his face? Yeah. Oh yeah, Clint. Uh, is it Clint? Clint Howard? Yeah, Clint Howard. Yeah, and that Clint thing Howard, looks yeah. abysmal. But one of the ones on there was this weird movie called Killer Tongue from 1996. Now, do you guys know about this? No. Oh my no. goodness. Okay, this is like sci-fi comedy horror. And it's a Spanish film, but if you read anything about this, it's kind of insane. Let me just, let me just, get ready, everybody. I haven't seen this, but I'm just going to tell you. You got a woman hiding out with four pastel-colored poodles in a desert gas station. And she's there with some loot that she has from her boyfriend who's doing some prison time. Then you got a meteorite that crashes near the gas station. And it transforms the woman into an alien with a gigantic tongue that attacks people. And then it turns the poodles into four drag queens. Anyway, the boyfriend escapes from prison and so forth. And hilarity ensues, basically. It keeps getting weirder and weirder. But it seems like this is a pretty far out there flick. So if you want to watch something really freaking weird, um, from what I've read about Killer Tongue, I didn't get around to watching it, but... That might be for you. If if it hadn't been comedy horror, I might have done it. But I was a little bit comedy horrored out. So, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay, well, we're not ready to wrap up just yet, guys. So, we got another surprise from Wolfman Josh Legary, as was teased at the beginning of the episode. We got a special treat, a little interview here with Nicholas Peterson. All right, at this point in the show, we are welcoming a special guest, director Nicholas Peterson 
How you doing, Nick? Good. How you doing? Really good. So we've been in contact over social media and, and email and stuff for years. But how I really know you, and I don't even know if you know this at this point, but um, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, there were always these guys who were the cool older brothers that would introduce the younger generation to elements they probably shouldn't have their hands on, weird horror movies and novels and, and music. And I had a friend named Jimmy Peterson, and he had this older brother named Nick who I don't know exactly what you were doing. I know you were in this band that must have been Henry Rollins influenced because you weren't wearing shoes when I saw you perform. And <laughs> <laughs> and the drummer of my band, I know, played with you guys at like a big Battle of the Bands thing at some point. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, it was called Prostate Farm. That's right. That's right. I don't know that I ever knew you well. I bumped into you a few times in high school, but you were always that older brother that was like, hey, here's this Henry Rollins poetry book you guys should check out or uh, whatever <laughs> it was. So I, you know, I knew Jimmy and who is your brother, who is now a tattoo artist. And I mean, he's an interesting guy. He had his own art gallery for a while. He and I were in APR together for years. And, um, and your younger sister, Jessica, is a friend of my wife's family. And so she's like taking my family photos for years and and I've, I've followed her work for a long time as well so I was just always aware of you and your work and so I remember when your first film came out uh, the feature film at the time was intellectual property now it's yep. called what is it uh, dark mind dark mind yeah I went and saw that uh, at a film festival and I was just excited that a guy that I kind of knew was doing film and that was kind of the direction I was going so I was just a few years behind you interested in doing the same thing and your career has been interesting to watch. I think I first contacted you because you had been doing motion control work and I was looking into doing motion control for a documentary that I was working on at the time. And I was just curious uh, what the basically just just how it worked. It was it was kind of a newer technology that not a lot of people were doing, especially on an indie level at that point. I hope I steered you clear of ever using motion control. <laughs> I, I hope I said, Josh, avoid at all costs. Don't don't do it. But you actually, just for our fans here on this show, you did motion control on a movie that uh, a lot of them probably like a lot, The Ring, in 2002. Yeah. What was that experience yeah. like? I mean, with, with motion control, it's, uh, it's very select shots that you do. You don't work on the entire movie all the time, uh, typically. But for The Ring, sure. there's a shot where, uh, where Samara you know, crawls out of the TV. So we shot that way after principal photography was done. And yeah, we showed up to stage and uh, Rick Baker is there and, and uh, the girl who's like probably 30, who looked like she's like 12, <laughs> uh, Rick, you know, I call him Rick because I saw him once. Um, you know, he did the full makeup and Gore Verbinski rolled up <laughs> in, uh, in a, uh, I'll never forget, he rolled up in a, in a Volvo station wagon. And I thought, wow, look at this dude. He's Gore Verbinski and he rolls up in a Volvo station wagon. Crazy. Um <laughs> But yeah, Gore was there. Again, I met him once, Gore. Uh, he was there. And yeah, we just <laughs> shot the shot. Uh, and then later on, you know, it's um, it's in the movie. And it's one of those like really great shots that really stood out, too. So Yeah, um, maybe the most famous shot in the entire film. So Yeah, there, there's some other shots that I wasn't, that uh, that the company I worked for did, like the shot where Naomi Watts pulls the, the fly out of the, the TV. That's a motion control shot. And I mean, a lot of that stuff was doing lots of ooky, weird stuff like, you know, CSI Miami, when, when the, the bullet goes inside the dude's heart and explodes inside of his chest, we shot all that stuff on CSI. 
uh, in house MD. And part of my job way back when was uh, people would call and say, "Hey, we want to do this crazy shot." Then I would bid it out. I'd talk to you know our the mad genius owner guy named Tom Barron. Hmm. Uh, Tom was you know one of the early guys of uh, special effects before it was coined as visual effects. Yeah, we'd figure out the shots and then we'd just go and shoot it. So it was a lot of a mad science that I've used these, these skills of of a never say die attitude and figuring out the best way to do it. Now in my own work, you know, for commercials and music videos and short films and whatever else comes up. Yeah, that's cool. I was looking at your Kickstarter for your new project, and you know, of course, your film drained. I remember. I think I contributed to that, maybe on Kickstarter, possibly. You I probably did. Well. Thank you. But um, but do those? Do you use aspects of what you learned in motion control when you're working on stuff like that? Oh, all the time. I mean, for me, I, I was really, really lucky because I, I went to Cal Arts and I graduated. And my first short film, Mom, premiered at Sundance, and that was all stop motion. And at the time, nobody was doing stop motion. Now, if I try to hire a stop motion animator, it is impossible. They're really? all booked, <laughs> and it's just they're so busy. And I wish I would have graduated today instead of uh, you know, <laughs> 15, 20 years ago, whatever it was, from CalArts, because then I'd be crazy busy in what I studied. But instead, uh, nobody is doing stop motion. And, you know, like I said, Tom Barron hired me and I started working at Image G in visual effects. And I mean, it was really, really amazing because it got me on set and I learned everything from what a director does, a producer does, the visual effects guys, the PAs, you know, production managers, all across the board, top to bottom. And for like four or five years, I learned how movies actually got made. And that training both technically of how things work, both on set and offset and post-production, pre-production. That was incredible training for me. So when I quit Image G and I made, you know, in, uh, intellectual property, the feature, I had, you know, again, like I, I, you, you always, you're always learning, you're constantly learning, but I had this massive hands-on training of just how to get things done. Right. No, that's awesome. So when you went on to make your feature, uh, what was that process like? Uh, it's hellish. I mean, anyone who's ever made any type of independent feature film will tell you it's probably the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life because you're, you're, you're constantly, you're, you're like a guy who's got a giant rock and you're pushing that rock up a hill. And every once in a while that rock decides to get even heavier and it just pushes you back down, but you keep on pushing that rock up the hill. That's what it's <laughs> like making an independent film. And, you know, it's, it's, it's rewarding in the sense of it's an experience that I'm really grateful I had. It's an incredible thing. But um, afterwards, when, you know, we finished and you go through the whole thing and you're like, where's the money? Where's the end of the rainbow? I realized that that rainbow is in commercials because you can make right. a lot more money <laughs> shooting uh, a Ford truck somewhere and live rather than making independent films. So now I've got more of a balance in the sense of um, I can work in commercials and then do these you know, small short films, which then drives you know, potential feature film projects down the line. Sounds like a nice balance. I hope to be there one day. I'm only doing independent documentary as my life-sustaining blood right now. And it's, it's <laughs> uh, you know, documentaries, <laughs> not exactly where the money's at. I hate to say it, but it's almost like you got to find a way just to survive. And if you can survive long enough, you can do what you want to do. But in the meantime, you do what you need to do. Absolutely. Well, if people 
want to search out intellectual property or dark mind. It's an interesting film. It's like, uh, it's this kind of paranoid psychological mind bending thriller and it's a lot of fun. Oh, thanks. <laughs> you had a good cast. Yeah, dude. The cast was awesome. I had, uh, you know, Chris Masterson from Malcolm in the middle, Lindsay Fonseca, who at the time had just come off of young and the restless. Uh, but this was her first feature. Now she's done everything from kick-ass to hot tub time machine, agent Carter and, you know, La, La Femme Nikita and, you know, David DeLuise and Richard Reilly, like just great character actors. And it was, uh, it, like I said, it, it was an incredible, incredible experience that uh, even though it was hellish, um, I can't wait to do again. Um, but this time the again will be hopefully a much smoother process because, you know, I'll, I'll be I'll, I'll be a much better director and I'll be able to, uh, you know, deal with a lot of things much better than I did 10 plus years ago when we shot the thing. Sure. So I want to get into your other short films at a later date. We're going to actually do a short horror episode of the podcast for the listeners. We're going to talk about a lot of the, our different favorite horror shorts that are out there. But for now, let's talk about your Kickstarter campaign for the mm -hmm. film that you're doing currently. I checked out your video yesterday, and I thought it was really interesting. You're taking a different approach uh, than a lot of filmmakers do when they go to Kickstarter. Yeah, it's funny. I, I've done This is my third Kickstarter. I've done two previously for films like the first one we did was for a film called drained and i did that with my buddy john heater as everyone knows is napoleon dynamite yeah. and what our first kickstarter we did no joke like three or four years ago when nobody knew what a kickstarter was and <laughs> there, there was <laughs> there there's a big you know hoopla or whatever you want to call it for you know john doing this crowdfunding thing that nobody really knew about and we got a lot of press just on that alone. And that was before the whole Zach Braff thing and Veronica Mars and you Spike know, Lee. Was, <clears throat> yeah, Spike Lee, like all these bigger guys. I mean, when I first saw Kickstarter, I was like, wow, what a great idea. And we did it. We raised like, uh, I think 30 grand and it was a lot of work. And, but, but we got the money and we made Drained a few months later. Fast forward two years after that, we did it again. At that point, nobody cared you were doing a Kickstarter. Right. And I had to kind of, you know, retool our, the strategy in order to raise the money because on the, on the visit end, we went for like $60,000. And I mean, we, we got it, but I think a lot of that is the, the, the force of, of Doug Jones, uh, who is in the visit end, and just his, his massively supportive fan base and Amy Smart's fan base too. And Yeah, the visitant so is a... Really fun short film. I I think that's the last time I reached out to you and we were talking about whether or not because the Babadook had come out right around that time and I was trying to look at the timeline, like, did they steal this from you? <laughs> are these just two great ideas that are similar in the ether at the same time? And I think just similar in the ether. I mean, you gotta remember like Babadook I mean, I, I don't know the history of Babadook, but like any feature film, they probably wrote that, you know, eight years ago. Right, exactly. It just sat you know, on a computer until somebody smart read it and they said, wow, this is an amazing story. Let's go shoot this thing. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're a fan of the idea, the concept of the Babadook, definitely check out The Visitant. It has a more visceral, demonic feel to it than that film does, I think, even. And yeah, of course, Doug Jones and Amy Smart in the film are at both excellent. So I was so lucky and amazed to work with them. And I, I know people say that all the time, like, oh, I'm so grateful to work with these talented people. But I mean, that's, what's incredible about, about Kickstarter is 
there's no way that I could have done this without having Kickstarter or any type of crowdfunding to, you know, make these neat little short films. Well, what you're really good at is getting a team together that people are interested in kickstarting. And I, I saw that with, you know, The Visitant and Drained and also your new film. You've you've been able to kind of package it with people that the audience is already interested in seeing what they're going to do next. So I think that's really cool. I feel every time I do a Kickstarter, like the landscape has changed drastically. So for this one, I felt, well, you know, Drained, we raised 30 grand. Visitant, we got 50 or something. But now the, it's, it's so oversaturated for films. On this new Kickstarter, I'm asking for less money than what I asked for on my first Kickstarter, hmm. which on the surface would seem counterintuitive. You think, well, you do something, you know, whenever you go back to that well or you, in, you do something, you should increase your budget. But just like my, my, my gut's telling me that there's so many people doing Kickstarters now that there's less dollars per people out there. I felt, let me do something that I can do for a lower budget than my, my previous Kickstarters that still has something new and, and different than what I've done before. So what I did was I, I shot the whole movie already. The short's already been shot. And we shot it on a 5D uh, at my house. And I got some actors. And, you know, I, I paid them. The crew, uh, since everything's going to be animated anyways, we didn't need a, a large crew. It was me. And there's a DP, and that was it, because there's no lighting. So we were able to shoot this really awesome, super tight, four or five-minute short film in a day at my house. And sure, if you look at the footage right now, it looks terrible. But that's okay, because everything's <laughs> going to be re... Because <laughs> everything I shoot looks terrible anyways. But that, <laughs> this one looks even more ter- terrible-er. Is that even a word, ter- terrible-er? Definitely it is, yeah. It is now. Um but that's the thing is I, I, I took what I had and we made this movie knowing that I can reanimate it later and then give it this really cool, interesting look and raise the money after the fact. So it, it's a bit of a backwards, different thing that I think it's, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm trying to see if it works and hopefully it works. Now, I think it's a really interesting concept. and I think if people check out the video, they'll get an even better sense of what it is. The closest thing I can kind of compare it to, I mean, tell me if I'm way off, but it seems like kind of like a waking life approach to animation or yeah, waking scattered life. darkly kind of a thing. Yeah, those are very similar in technique of, you know, you shoot to live action. On scanner darkly and waking life, that was a, you know, there's a lot of CG going on there. And I love CG, but this is much more of the, the aha uh, take on me approach of every single or every other frame that we shot is going to be redrawn by an animator by hand. Like, you know, old school animated feeling. I did a similar thing for a music video and it's on the Kickstarter site for a band called Tweakbird. And the same idea of like, you know, I had this really awesome idea and I shot the thing for no joke, like 150 bucks, the video. And then I, I did all the animation myself and it took me like a year and a half to do all the animation, wow. but it looked really great. I mean, it's what really started my my music video. Uh, I guess you call it career. Uh, but that, that that was the first video I did that really got me, you know, got me a video rep and got me going in music videos. So where can people find out more about this project? Of course, we'll link to it in the show notes of this episode at horrormoviepodcast.com. But uh, I think if you just go to Kickstarter and type in "sticky fingers," you'll you'll find it if you stick on there. And what's really great is. Going back to the idea of what can I do to give people something for their money? Because even though I'm getting this really great film, you know, people need to get something for their dollar beyond just watching a movie. And what's cool and one of the most popular 
things uh, that I've, uh, I've had is um, this is an opportunity for people to be in the movie. Since we're, we're animating the whole thing, we can animate you inside the film. You can either be a portrait on the wall, you can get your voice in it, do a reading for some dialogue that I've got, or you can actually be one of the actors in the film. Yeah. So that's pretty unique. It's amazing. And, yeah. and it's, again, it's like, you know, after I shot this thing, I thought, what can I do that's different to give people something new? But, you know, it, it is something kind of cool. I mean, film has been my entire life, and I've been fortunate enough to kind of dedicate myself to it. But there's a lot of people who really love movies and love film, they really love the idea of putting their money into something that gets something like this made and then showing their friends and showing themselves, like, I helped make this. I mean, like, there, there's all these film lovers across the world who want to make stuff, but they just don't know how. And I mean, and, and if for 10 bucks, you can help make something really cool happen. And then you show your friends, look, there's my credit. I helped make this. It's a cool thing. Totally. And you've got support from awesome people like Danny Elfman and Clive Barker. You can get original Clive Barker art as one of the rewards. But I think the most important point to make for our particular audience is that, guys, if we can raise enough money, this is a chance to get Jay of the Dead, Jason Piles, in a movie completely against his will. And I just like the idea of that. If we can raise enough money as a community, we put Jay's face right into the film. Right, well, I would advise everybody to check out Sticky Fingers. It looks like a really cool project. And if you didn't get a great sense of it here, which I hope you did, you'll get an even better sense just watching the short video at Kickstarter. Uh, you'll get to see the footage that was shot and kind of the vision for how it could come together. And it's really cool. Cool. Thanks, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this whole project. Yeah, me too. And uh, hopefully I'm looking forward to having you back when we do our short horror episode as well. Yeah, I'd love to be there. Love, love, love it. Love it. Cool, man. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, man. <laughs> All right, and at this point in episode 88 of Horror Movie Podcast, we got a special little treat for you. We're going to bring you our review of, well, actually, Josh has already reviewed Green Room before on Horror Movie Podcast, but I finally got to catch up with it as well. Josh, can you remind me what episode did you and William or Kill Bill Kill review that on? That's a good question. That was uh, during Sundance. It was our, you know, Sundance review of the film. So um, it was the oh. same episode you reviewed The Boy. Okay, so episode 81, I have it here. Okay. It, so that was the first review, and that was a, there were no spoilers. I remember I really appreciated that. And, mm-hmm. you, and you guys saw it at um, Sundance, as you said. Correct. Yeah, that was the last festival screening before uh, its release in theaters, so. Yeah, that was excellent. And that is the same episode that we have a um, great picture of our listener friend Holly wearing her Horror Movie Podcast t-shirt. So That's true. So that is worth seeing as well. So episode 81, go listen to that. And what we're going to do in this particular episode is first we'll kind of assess, because Josh, one of your questions, one of the things that you were curious about, just probably because you were humoring me, was <laughs> how I would assess this you know categorize it um oh yeah i mean that's a big deal because you know (laughs) your your tna as it were your your uh tone and what is it tone Tone and assignment assignment. yes Mm -hmm. yeah is you know subject of some controversy in the horror movie podcast community and and everyone's always wondering okay like where is he gonna put this one where is he gonna put that one um (laughs) 
you know, so in the world of no escape and bone tomahawk, I'm just curious (laughs) how green room might be assessed. That is a great question. And I love it that we're going to talk about this right up front because what we'll do for the listeners, definitely listen to Josh and kill bill kills review in episode 81. Right now we're going to talk about where it would fall as in terms of genre And then we're going to go into a spoiler review. So we'll give a spoiler warning. We're not going to talk spoilers right now in just a minute. So, okay, so let's just talk about this. All right. So if people remember, you know, of course, we've got man or mankind or men and women versus death. Okay. So check, (laughs) you know, green room fits that (laughs) determining horror. And as far as determining the tone, the people that we are most likely to relate to, which in this case is a um, this little punk band, um, are they mainly victims or mainly victors? Okay, well, that's uh, a good question. I was curious how you would what you would think about that. Yeah, and 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 uh, you know, uh, we can't go into details just yet on that, but in terms of like scorekeeping and like percentages, like. Like, you know, I, I would say they're definitely victims because um, awful things befall them, right? And so, mm-hmm. I, I think this definitely falls in a primal horror category. So, I would call it horror. And yes, many of the listeners have guessed it. Um, I would call it survival horror. That's true. However, Josh, I, I'm very comfortable with saying to people... You know, and in fact, I said this on Movie Podcast Weekly this this week um, that I think that uh, for the average viewer, like most people out there who love movies and they don't, you know, care about Jay's TNA, blah, blah, blah. Like they don't care about that. They would right. call it a thriller, like a, a drama slash thriller. Yeah, it doesn't have clear horror tropes, although Kill Bill Kill noticed in our version that it actually does kind of follow that, um, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre setup to some degree. Mm -hmm. It has the same kind of teens in peril separated from society. You know, it's got a bit of that Friday the 13th thing going on there. So yeah, that was kind of uh, a good point that he made there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, you could, one could make the case for, a little bit of hybrid horror in here because, you know, hybrid horror is a blend of a couple different things. And, um, you know, one could argue this has a little bit of uh, beastly freaks action in it. <laughs> like one could argue that <laughs> and, sure. and blended with drama, you know, so you could argue that I would not call this classic horror though, as far as that goes. So, sure, you know, for the horror movie podcast audience, this has enough Explicit and graphic violence, it's it's dark enough, it's disturbing enough, and violent enough, and I think like thrilling enough in terms of suspense and tension that I do think that, um, you know, a hardcore horror fan might be underwhelmed, but I think that this community would appreciate it for being a yeah. pretty hardcore thriller or, you know, a fringe horror type of primal horror flick. Sure. And I think, you know, you know, I attended the filmmaker Q&A at Sundance and my sense was the director, Jeremy Solnier, he grew up, you know, making horror movies with his friends. We've talked about Murder Party, but I think he's at the stage just in his life where 
it seems to me, I obviously can't speak for him, but based on what he said, it seems to me he's not really concerned with genre as much as just making the types of films he wants to make and mm-hmm. not really worrying if it fits into any sort of definitions. And that, that seemed to be my takeaway from what he said at the Q and a kind of like, he's, he's not interested in just making a typical drama film. He's interested in including genre elements. Um, but he also doesn't care if it adheres to, you know, the rules of the genres either. So, yeah. And I, you know, I'd agree with that. I think you represented him well there and I've heard him in other interviews and I think that fits. I think what, um, Jeremy Saunier is really going for is telling a, a story that's kind of that lives in an organic world that's like reality to us. And that's, you know, if people out there listening to horror movie podcast are on the fence about whether they might enjoy seeing Green Room, one of the biggest things that I could praise it for and just really encourage you to tempt you to see it with is that I love Josh how. This film unfolds in a very organic way, like one one step logically leads to the next. And this is a perfect example of um, one of those films where being in the wrong place at the wrong time and how that becomes, just like survival horror, it's a dangerous situation where the longer they're stuck in this situation, the deadlier it becomes. Yeah, absolutely. We had a couple of our listeners write in about their thoughts on green room that sought this weekend. Um, Jason dragon said he liked it a lot. He gave it an eight out of 10. He said it was so far the best film of the year, mm-hmm. uh, taking over midnight special miles ahead and everybody wants some as the best film through the first third of the year. Jace, uh, Mr. Watson said that it will definitely make his top 10 list of 2016. So, mm-hmm. yeah. and he absolutely loved it. And I want to chime in there, too. And I'm not just talking, like, on a horror list, although I do believe it'll make my horror list, and I'll probably get grief over that, just like I did for No Escape. But but just in all genres, Josh, I would bet money right now, and it's only May, I would bet money that it is going to be at least in my top three, maybe even top two, and it has a chance for number one. I mean, I'm I'm pretty certain it'll be in my top three for the whole year. I loved it wow. that much. So it's definitely my number one at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's tremendous. There's, I guess, one general question I wanted to ask you that people may be wondering about based on my review, because okay. I was really focused on the interworkings of the punk scene, because that's kind oh, of my yeah. background. And that to me is, I was probably raving more about that element than any other element, just because it was so refreshing to see it done. Uh, properly instead of just kind of the fake version you see in movies all the time. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, I don't know. I really appreciate it. And I wondered if not having that knowledge or, or anything, if that had any impact on you, what kind of your takeaway was from that? Actually, I remembered how excited you were in your review about the authenticity of that. And yeah, I don't have the punk background that you do. And so I actually did find um, to some extent, and this isn't a criticism in this case, but like people have heard me um, complain a little bit about Ryan Johnson's brick before because I felt like Ryan Johnson manufactured this world, <laughs> this like noir setting in high school where they used this like, <laughs> it's not Diablo Cody-esque, you know, it's more authentic <laughs> than, than that because I think yeah. 
what she does is insane. But like, I think that Ryan Johnson's brick, you know, I felt a little bit alienated and I was outside of that world. And, and really, I believe that the, the slang in Brick exists only in Ryan Johnson's head and within Brick. Whereas this film, that punk stuff, their lingo, I think obviously that all actually does exist out in the world. Even though I'm not privy to it, it was a little bit alienating to me. I felt like I was kind of on the outside of the conversation sometimes. But I was still able to keep my head above water. I could still keep up with what was going on. And so I didn't have all the context you had. But, you know, at the same time, it just made me appreciate because something about this filmmaker that I like, Jeremy Sonier, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't give you those really dumb, obvious, awkward exposition like, hey, remember five years ago when we were at dad's treehouse? You, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, they don't do that stupid stuff. They, As you know, we're first cousins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was part. Yours was way better than mine. That's hilarious. But but yeah, like he doesn't do any of that idiotic stuff. He he respects the audience. He puts it out there. His characters, and in fact, I heard him in an interview say something to this effect. He said, "You know, my goal is for my characters to just interact genuinely, the way real people would interact, and then it's up to the audience to." catch up and because you are listening to them and you're a person too i mean you can kind of just glean from the context and figure out what's going on and that's what happened with me so no i didn't appreciate that aspect on the level that you did um and it alienated me a little bit but it didn't ruin my experience with the film well that's good i mean i i certainly didn't i certainly hoped it wouldn't ruin your experience i just was wondering if it was uh off-putting or, or anything so anyway that's interesting yeah i mean I, I was a big jerk about that with brick i mean that it, it it does take away from my enjoyment of brick and that's an unpopular well, brick is at least an, an invented language or it's at least, you know it's reminiscent of the language of the noir novels basically so yeah yeah it's yeah, it's not quite Diablo Cody crazy, so I mean, I can respect it for that. But I, I'm a huge fan of Brick, just in case anyone out there is pulling their hair out right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, I'll I, be, I'll, I'm going on record as a major <laughs> fan of Brick. And I appreciate it. I like it. But yeah, Josh has always told me I was an idiot for like not loving Brick, and so did Andy. Andy, over a movie podcast weekly, gets fighting mad at me for for brick but well i mean i just think it's such a singular film and i and the same way i felt about brick is the same way i felt about blue ruin is now the same way i feel about green room i feel like they're in kind of that similar style and mode of film and so i don't know i did there's something about the aesthetic and the world that they create that's really appealing to me now i'm glad you brought up blue ruin which is um Jeremy Sonier's previous film, which we both loved. It was my number one of all genres that year. Um, and I just, I do not think, I do not believe that's horror, but um, still pretty violent and it's a revenge flick, you know, and, and definitely worth seeing. But I, I'm dying to know, Wolfman, putting these two against each other, if you had to pick one or the other, which one do you prefer or like more? Oh, I mean, absolutely, Green Room. It's Ooh, okay. It's one of my. I mean, it just speaks to me so much as, because of my background. I think I can't overcome that element. I love seeing that world depicted on film. It's just like seeing a part of your 
you know, life depicted on film. So it's kind of exciting. Yeah, I get you. Well, that makes perfect sense. So yeah, Andy and I, and, and most people, by the way, that I've heard talk about that, which one they like better. Most people have said green room, but Andy and I both like um, blue ruin a little bit better, but still love this. So for people who haven't seen this yet, we're about to move into full blown spoilers on this movie. We definitely highly recommend this, right, Josh? I mean, for me, I'll just tell people right now, I'm coming in at a 9.5 out of 10 on this movie. Um, this yeah. is a must-see for me, absolutely. It, it's definitely a buy. I'm going to buy this movie for sure. Like, it, And I don't buy many movies, but this is one that I will buy. I loved it that much. What about you, Josh? What do you rate it? Um, I can't remember what I rated it. I, right now, it feels like a 10 to me. I mean, it feels like a 10, buy it, see it in the theater. I, I would have gone and seen it in the theater again had i had i not already seen it i'm anxiously awaiting the release of the blu-ray uh it's you know something i'm really looking forward to so okay yeah and i'll just pull up episode 81 yeah i said at the time 10 theater buy it okay so i'll stick with that that's good yeah and uh kill bill kill said 10 theater buy it so yeah absolutely that's those are great what did ratings. andy say on movie podcast weekly he also gave it a 9.5 awesome yeah so yeah, so if if you haven't seen this, then definitely you don't want to be spoiled on it. So um, tune out and we'll catch up with you next time. But now we're going to move into our full-blown spoilers for Green Room. You can't keep us here. You got to let us go. We're not keeping you. You're just staying. We're so f***ing dead, guys. What do we do? Okay, Josh, what do you want to talk about on the spoiler section? I was really interested in just some of the more intense scenes and how you enjoyed the, the way the plot unfolded. I think um, it was really unexpected a couple of times for me. Uh, the first being when he sticks his arm out of the, of the door. I mean, that has to be one of the most brutal scenes I've seen in a movie. And that's when just the violence takes this huge leap up in that moment where it just <laughs> yes. is like, what is happening? This is crazy. And that's your lead guy, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. wait a second. Yeah. I did. I honestly, like I knew they, I could tell they had him, you know, and they were harming him obviously, but yeah. I didn't have a context for what was going on. And then when it reveals that his like hand is almost cut off, Oh yeah. Horrifying. Yeah. It's so intense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so yeah, that's one thing that's tremendous about this is he really defies your expectations. I mean, like for example, one of the band members knows jujitsu, which was, was yeah. awesome, but he wasn't like, you know, he wasn't Bruce Willis in this movie. I mean, he didn't turn into like the, the Van Damme character or, you know, the, the Steven Seagal who got him through it necessarily yeah. you know I, I mean he was effective sometimes but in real life you know when it comes down to it you're not going to be right on the money every single time and <laughs> i mean he's a big part of the reason that they survive at, at the point that he gets involved physically but he's kind of has the fate of the hero and feast he just you know right he gets yanked <laughs> out the window and that's it you know so. <laughs> exactly it's real, yeah. Real life happens. Yeah, and then and then like their um their de defector the the traitor guy, like you you think that in this Mark movie, Weber's character. Yeah, yeah. Or is it Weber? Weber. Let me see here. I haven't pulled up here. Huge fan of him. Just trying to, yeah, Mark Weber. Yeah, you think that 
that he's going to be um, taking them through this. And then his face gets blown off like right yeah. then out of nowhere. And when that happens, this is so effective. I mean, because when violence happens in real life, if anybody's experienced like a truly violent event, that's how it happens. I mean, it's kind of out of the blue. It's kind of shocking and surprising. And it just take. I mean, you just get blindsided by it. And when that yeah. happened, I really felt like a, a real unsettled scaredness. Like I, I felt afraid in this movie. And it's like, we are not safe here. And we like we could all die, you know, because I relate with the characters so much. I feel like I'm one of them. Yeah. From the minute Mark Webber was on screen, I was like, he's the hero. Like he's going to come through, save the day. This is going to be amazing. And that did not happen. <laughs> no, no, not at all. That's troubling. And then like, um, I just got to give props here to uh, Macon Blair. I love him. You know, he was the lead, obviously, in Blue Ruin. He's the director's the werewolf best and friend. And the, the werewolf and murder party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, I, I'm just so impressed, Josh, with the way that he can hold his own with these other actors like Anton Yelchin. I mean, very uh, well established, and of course, like you know, our boy uh, <laughs> Jean Luc Picard. What, what's what's remind Patrick me, Patrick Stewart? Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Patrick Stewart. I mean, these are serious actors, right? And yeah. and he he owns his screen presence just so as well as the it. others. And I feel like I've encountered, I feel like he's the one of the most real life characters in this because he kind of plays like um, the manager of the venue or whatever. And he has, he has this like, he's a little bit removed to the point that um, you're like, okay, does this guy really care about us? Does he really have our best interest or is he just you know, a businessman and that's what he was yeah. doing. And, and like his indifference, really the coldness to him <laughs> was chilling to me as well. Yeah. But he also had, I think more than any of the other characters, uh, hum- a little more of a humanity than some of the other bad guys in the mm-hmm. movie. So I don't know. Yeah. He was almost conflicted, right? I mean, there was yeah. kind of this, this blend within him. I mean, it was interesting. I mean, he was definitely the most conflicted of the bad guys. And, and Other what, than Mark Webber, then he's the traitor. Yeah. Well, in, in the most, um, you know, I, I thought the, the scariest, like most horror-like character was uh, Worm, Brent Wersner, the actual guy who com- perpetrated the murder. Yeah. Um, that, a psychopath, right? Like, like, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, that's the kind of dude or character that's in a full-blown horror movie and he ends up being the slasher killer. But like, I mean, that guy was really troubling to me and I I was really, I actually felt intimidated. I felt like he was imposing. So that was pretty cool. Now. Yeah. And and your, your main characters are are just kids. I mean, they feel so much weaker than all of the people they're going up against, you know? And so that's, another one of the awesome things about the movie is that they just have this fragility to them, even though they're, you know, they're smart and they have their own set of ethos and they're, you know, they're brave. They, they play uh, that dead Kennedy song to the group of skinheads, <laughs> the Nazi punks F off song. <laughs> yeah. And I, I thought that's what was going to get them in trouble. I thought that was going to be yeah. the thing, but that yeah. was cool. But yet yeah, you, despite their kind of, braveness and, and toughness there they are still 
so much younger and more fragile than like everybody else that they're encountering. Yeah. And, and I loved how that was actually, um, kind of built into the theme about how they were, uh, they were somewhat legit, but a little bit posers still, you know, cause when it came down to their favorite music, it, it still wasn't necessarily <laughs> the misfits, you know, it was like Prince and <laughs> stuff like that. So, I mean, they were trying to be hard, but they weren't com- completely like that, you know? I think, funny. I think that's kind of interesting. And, and what about, I mean, Josh, this has one of my favorite kind of uh, narrative conventions. Of, you've got the siege narrative in this movie. They're stuck oh, in yeah. this green room. And I know you've been in a band before. Um, you've been in bands and I've been in mm-hmm. bands. And I've been in green rooms like that. You know what I mean? I, I've, I've experienced not what happens in this movie, but where you're waiting <laughs> backstage. And I'm just thinking about that. Like, I mean, we have a... We have a a pretty neat little venue here in Utah that is called Valor, and yeah. and that little green room has like all these record things on the wall. I can't, it's definitely probably the coolest green room in the country. Yeah, I would say so. I have to, yeah, shout out there to Corey Fox at Valor, but um, yeah. but but that you know that whole thing of okay, my band's here and now we're stuck and we got to survive. And when you think about how um i guess disarming or dismantling for their psyche it must have been when they started getting picked off i mean that's the movie just gives you no way out it's crazy because you you keep seeing these windows of opportunity where you think okay like they're going to go into this basement and there's going to be a way that they can get up through this this vent this grate and no you know you think there are all these possibilities of ways they might escape, and one by one, they're just closed off to them. And it's it was kind of uh, terrifying. I mean, it was definitely terrifying. It just felt so oppressive, and there was just no way they were going to get out of there. And I, I really appreciated that about the movie. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, me too. Now, um, uh, and, and speaking to that point right there, I mean, I like how um, – the, the things that happened were, were very organic to the film. It wasn't like it was this contrivance or like where you have this deus ex machina where you've got like some yeah. kind of like <laughs> it's well, yeah, because I want trick. to see them be able to get out of that vent and make a run for it and like have that big action scene. But the movie is just not even interested in that. It's, it's not going to play it for the most exciting moments it can be. It's just going to say, no, like we're, they're stuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was pretty awesome. <laughs> I know. I see. I admire that so much about it. And you know, I I really feel like this movie's into authenticity. Like, there's a verisimilitude to this world. Like, for example, the Patrick Stewart character. I love him, and I've said this before on the other podcast. But I I love that. You know, he's been a good guy character so many times that he could have chewed the scenery, but he didn't. He just plays a yeah. very cold and calculating businessman, really. Yeah. And, and and his choice to be so cold and calculating is actually more terrifying than if he acted like some sort of maniac. Yeah. Well, and again, I just appreciate that it's grounded in a reality instead of trying to be mustache twirling. and Right. Exactly. So, okay. So, Josh, I got to talk about my the scariest aspect to me. And I yeah. did. I did not go into this on a movie podcast weekly, but it's the, not the guy getting his hand sliced in half. No, 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 no. I would rather have that happen to both hands than those freaking <laughs> dog attack scenes. Oh yeah. Oh, like you know the dogs. Like 
chomping the neck, <laughs> like the throat. I mean, that's, that is so scary to me. Um, you know, and it's not, I mean, I've had some bad experiences with dogs. I'll be honest. And I don't love dogs, but like <laughs> the scenes in this movie are so convincing. They look like they're actually happening to a person. They're getting mauled in the throat. Oh yeah. And and I, I had, I actually had a hard time. Like I was wincing and wiggling in my seat and like kind of protecting my neck. <laughs> like I'm so scared of that. Well, that's crazy. I know. The here's one. This is such a random note, but I just think it's so weird that they built that venue as a set. And I know, like, Jeremy Sonia talked about how it was important to him that it had all these elements that he'd envisioned for the plot. But I just feel like you could find that interior anywhere. Like, it's so. On one hand, you want to hand it to the production designer because it just looks like every bad black box club you've ever been in like yes. it just feels so familiar it looks legit yeah but it's also just so uh, generic like there's nothing that stands out or is kind of cool about it so i just think why not just shoot this at any random club because you easily could do that you know i just wonder why they don't save six million dollars and i just want jeremy Sonia to take more money home for this he did such a good job he deserves to get paid for it <laughs> right i totally agree and yeah, that's interesting. I just wonder, um, I mean, I've heard him talk in interviews about how he wanted to get this vision out there. So I don't know if it was a matter of him being faithful to capturing what he had envisioned all along. But I mean, he is definitely a detail man. Like, for example, Wolfman, yeah. like I, I admire, like <clears throat> with the uh, Patrick Stewart character, I mean, they established kind of early on that he is a stickler for the fire code. He didn't want the band equipment in the way. And then later he's like, he comments on it. And so you can tell this guy's kind of like a Nazi <laughs> har har about, about fire code. And, uh, yeah. And then, and then, amongst other things. Yeah, exactly. And then you learn. I mean, later on, it makes sense. It's like, okay, he's got tons of heroin downstairs. He doesn't want that burning up, right? But and that makes sense. But I still liked. I believe that even if they didn't have heroin in the basement, he probably would have written something in like that because it's like it, this guy. It, you know, it's okay with him to like kill people, but he wants to. You know, he's worried about his building burning down. Like it, it's just funny to me. He's doing his job, and that's how he approaches everything in the movie. He's he's doing his job. Yeah. No, that was interesting. I. One thing that I thought was really interesting about the punks versus skins vibe of the film is they really are armed for battle. You know, these punk kids are just in like their tennis shoes and sleeveless t-shirts and the skinheads are all wearing combat boots and Jack, they feel like they're in armor compared to how vulnerable <laughs> again, these kids feel, you know, yeah. like a knife to these kids feels like a huge, uh, you know, it, it just seems impassable to get past a knife when you're in a cutoff t-shirt. Right. Their skin just look. I just, you know, I can just feel the flesh being cut into when he's <laughs> when he's got his hand out the window, and it's just interesting again to see the that kind of difference between them. William talked about this on our review, but Jeremy Sonia said he was kind of thinking of it as a war film in a lot of ways when he was writing it, and and yeah, I think just the military aspect of the skinheads' uniforms feels like that too. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, the stormtroopers, you know, that great, the, you know, the, um, I guess the, 
the dichotomy that the difference between the two gave our our band of protagonists a real vulnerability and and yeah it made you feel vulnerable as a viewer at least it did to me and that was pretty freaky actually so what did you make josh of the um at the end when patrick stewart's character you know he's held at gunpoint and then he just starts walking away do you think he was just you know he he knew that he was either going to be dead or he was just like well then maybe they won't have the guts to do it so i'm just i'm not going to go down like this he was just too proud and that was my assumption is he didn't think that they would have the guts to take him out basically yeah wow yeah i mean that's incredible right because yeah it's interesting in a much lesser film it would have been this thing where like he tried to attack them and then he said some kind of really nefarious line you know like you know but no he he just tries to start walking away briskly and then he gets shot down like i think that's awesome yeah, it is really awesome. It was again, it's just jarring and the last thing you would expect. And so I think that's it's just uh, really fulfilling as an audience member to be surprised by a movie in this yeah. day and age. Absolutely. Now, there is another very horror-esque scene. when um, So the Imogen Poots character, I mean, I by the way, I knew she was in this, but I forgot it. And she was almost like unrecognizable. And she was kind of, a, in some ways, she seemed kind of crazy on some level. And when she, like, lays that guy open and just slits up the middle. Like, oh, yeah. Like, really slowly and, like, I'm like, oh, my goodness. I mean, that was <laughs> that was very alarming, right? I mean, it's freaky. Yeah, it totally was. I Yeah, I assumed she was, like, on drugs or something. <laughs> the way she was acting was so skittish, but yeah, I don't know. There was that scene where she comes out of the couch. I like envisioned that from the second they were locked in that room, like they should hide in that couch. And I was trying to think about. It. I think there's actually a, a music video from the band called The Used, from who's from our local area. I think there's this, something where the singer crawls into a couch, and I, and I think it, I don't know. It was just weird. It felt like I was having deja vu when I saw her climbing out of that couch. It was just a nice touch um, <laughs> and just a cool movie moment. But. That is cool. Yeah. So anyways, I know we talked about this at the beginning, um, but, you know, I for most people, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking it's a, a drama, thriller, horror movie. But, I mean, do you think it has enough in terms of kills in, like, the graphic violence to, like, please a horror fan? Because I, I do think that it would get respect from the horror community. What do you think? I mean, I don't know who the – this, this is the, what we talk about. I don't know who's the horror community. I mean – you loved it. I loved it. The only two listeners I know of ours that saw it loved it. So I'm getting the sense that people like it. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's so, it's such a hard thing to define. Is a is it a horror movie? I mean, yeah, it's it fits your tone and assignment. So yeah, it doesn't kind of feel be like that classic version of a horror movie necessarily, but the violence is so over the top compared to anything you'd get in a normal thriller. I mean, there's no thriller where you're going to see this level of violence and, and really not just the violence, but the tension that leads to the violence is a big part of why that violence works. There's he's so good at right. building this tension. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to work for a horror audience, even though it's not a slasher, it's not supernatural, but I think people will be able to get into this experience. Yeah, and the, and the reason I I like what you said there because the reason I brought that up again was because over on Movie Podcast Weekly I said 
this is going to sound funny, but, um, you know, the violence in this film comes out of such a real, organic, everyday place. And it's so, like, jarring and shocking and alarming that it yeah. almost is scarier to me than, like, when you just have a traditional slasher killer or some kind of, yeah. like, than a lot of horror movies are. I mean, this is this is scarier to me than many horror movies, I think. Uh- I mean, I think Blue Ruin was very similar in that way. Um, I would this goes further, I would say than Blue Ruin. But there are a couple of scenes. The first really violent scene in Blue Ruin was exactly that way. Like th- that was one of the craziest things I've ever seen, and I had that feeling a couple times in this movie as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, anyways, uh, do you have any other thoughts here on Green Room before we wrap up? Anything else? Not really. I mean, it's it's a fairly simple film. I guess anybody listening to this hopefully has seen it already. If you if you're listening to this, and you haven't seen it. What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. What's wrong <laughs> with you? There's something severely wrong with you. But no, um, yeah. I mean, I the again the thing with the punk thing. It's just so hard for me to overcome. It's just to see them wearing a real dead Kennedy's t-shirt and a real minor threat t-shirt. Those are, it's almost funny that it's those two bands because those are such hard bands to license. Nobody cares about this conversation, but those aren't bands that license their stuff to people. I mean, uh, minor threat, those guys, they're, you know, band of fall, this Fugazi, they never released a t-shirt. They were so anti-commercial that they never had a t-shirt available for purchase. Wow. And so it's cool that they were, they licensed this, film their shirt to use in the movie. It's so unlike them. It must mean that they really respected Jeremy Solnier's vision for what the film was going to be, which I just, again, I think is so cool. That is very cool. Uh, another little trivia that's um not quite as cool as yours, but like, uh, you know, Imogen Poots and Anton Yelchin were together in uh, Fright Night 2011. So there's a little oh, yeah. horror movie connection for people as well, but yeah, that's cool. I mean, this is um, yeah. I, I mean, I would be amazed if this if this is not either my number one or number two favorite film of 2016. I love this. It's a definite buy when it comes out. Do you know when it's coming out for sale, Josh? No, I've I've asked them a couple times. I think they're just so intent on pushing the theatrical. They don't want to even have anyone thinking about that. They might be able to wait for video for it. You know what I mean? Oh, I guess um, so. I don't know. I haven't heard that information. I've, and I've looked for it a couple times, but okay. yeah, I don't know. Like the, the genre is so interesting, right? I, yeah. It's like this pot boiler that boils over. <laughs> right. It's just, and it's so fierce. That's the other word that like really comes to mind when I think of this film. It's fierce. It is Which fierce. I, now, and I'm I'm really curious about this. Now, I like, okay, so, yeah, we got one more thing we need to discuss for sure. Um, do you know how a lot of times, well, you and I admire satellite stories, and a lot of times there's something drawn upon from a satellite story experience that ends up, you know, informing the characters or empowering the characters to go forward and do something impressive. Well, in this yeah. film, that that actually takes place, which is a little bit surprising. Uh, not a criticism, but, you know, Jeremy Saunier does that here. Um, there's a satellite story about the, the paintball battle, the paintball gun yeah. battle, and, and like kind of when they go kamikaze and the one guy actually survives really well. And that's what they end up doing. Now, um, I think the execution of that is done 
convincingly enough and well enough where he's not just kamikaze crazy and it's not idiotic. You know, I think it still yeah. works, but I mean, that's a little bit of why I take some off the film. I mean, uh, how did you feel about that? I really disliked the satellite story here. I think um, initially just paintball is just such a dumb, like it just says no offense to any of our paintball or listeners out there, but <laughs> it just seems like kind of a cheesy thing to include in a film like this um, because everything else in the film just feels so gritty and that just feels kind of silly to me, but I get, but the thing I like about it is, Oh, these are kids. Yeah. You know? exactly. and, and, th- and so that, I think that actually is really effective when I think about it more that, um, yes, the idea that, and even that he's trying to apply this children's game kind of to this insane real life experiment there, but he just doesn't have the life experience mm-hmm. to give any other example, which I think is, kind of cool yeah i think that's i think you're dead on the money right there right when you said that that's what i was thinking is like well they are kids and so that's what they would draw from and um yeah yeah, it's just that you know the what i thought what i thought rang a little bit false and i know why it was done but when they kept coming back to the desert island pick you know especially like the moment right before they were going to storm out of the green room yeah, I don't think they'd be thinking about that and confessing their their actual dead <laughs> desert island pick. I know that's like a little bit nitpicky, but but in terms of like the the verity of this film, like how true it is to real life, I mean that's one of the only notes that was even a little bit false to me. But I mean it's it is very movie like, but at the same time, the seriousness with with which these kids take themselves in those like early scenes where they're being interviewed by the guy from the radio station or whatever, like yes, this is like the biggest confession they have to make, right? Like this is completely <laughs> undermines their entire, you know, attitude and, yes. and persona. So in some ways it works, but yeah, it's very movieish. It didn't bother me, but yeah, the satellite story and the desert island picks are definitely the most movie like thing that we get here, right? Yeah, so and it only stands out because the rest of the movie is so grounded. Oh man, yeah, it is all business otherwise. So, yeah, and and the, I was a little bit disappointed actually by the basement scene. I thought that was going to go a little bit more nuts in the basement. What did you think about that? Yeah, that's exactly what Andy said over on Movie Podcast Weekly. He said he he wished that there had been a little more done in the basement. I totally agree, and um, you know. This is funny. It's like talking out of both sides of my mouth. On one side, I admired, you know, how vague the red shoelaces were and what they represented. But on the other hand, I was so curious about it. I wanted to learn a little bit more about the red shoelaces. And, you know, I definitely could tell it was a promotion. (laughs) You know, it reminded me of like a belt, you know, like in in martial arts, like jujitsu. When he got awarded his red shoelaces, like... um. But like things like that where I, I would have liked to see him develop more. But, you know, the thing is, that's at the same time, it's something I really admire about him is he doesn't spell everything out. And and that because that would give a little bit of artificiality there. So it, it, it's just so it's just a nice real life detail that for people in the know or whatever, like it just feels like, OK, like this adds lends so much authenticity to it. And the people who aren't necessarily in the know 
you kind of can believe that, it, you know, you know what I mean? Like there are so many movies where I'm not in the know and this just happens to be the one that I am, but where you kind of like, I don't know this world, but seeing how the level of detail put into this, I can kind of like respect that more and, um, yeah. And kind of fill in the blanks for myself. Like you were able to. Absolutely. I yeah. I mean, it's, it's a nice touch. Is what I would say. Uh, another thing that I think is pretty incredible about this, like, you know how like in a, in a great screenplay, what happens is, the characters are getting ready to make a decision or they're stuck with a problem. And you, you as the viewer think, Oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? Like where are these screenwriters going to go with that? I mean, that is a pickle right there. Well, yeah. when, when the stabbing happens and the nine one one call goes out and then the Macon Blair manager character has to call and say, yeah, I want to report a stabbing. I'm like, wow, where are they going to go with this with the cops? And then they have two of the faithful, you know, they have them like one of them stabs yeah. the other kid. So that can be an actual legitimate stabbing. And he like takes the fall and goes to jail. I'm like, this is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, hardcore. <laughs> that is hardcore. Oh my no God. pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, I would have, I would have wanted to talk through that more. It's like, okay, where are my... <laughs> Where are my organs? Like, it's just like slice a little bit of the love handle. Don't actually stab it into my body. You know, that would have been crazy. Anyways. All right. Anything else, Wolfman Josh? Because I'm. I think we've covered it all. There's not, you know, there's, it's a small movie in terms of scope, but it's, it's just so tense. Yeah, it's fantastic. I hope everybody gets to see it. And please let us know. In the show notes for this episode, well, what you think of Green Room. And if you're going to do spoilers, that's fine. Just give a big spoiler warning. You guys are great about that. So, um, yeah, thanks for joining the conversation. Definitely. So, guys, for next time, as we wrap up episode 88 here, I got a little homework assignment for everybody if you want it. I've heard great things. I've heard nothing but good. This is a little shout out from Jeff Hammer. He brought this to my attention right now. Streaming on Netflix, watch instantly, is a film by the writer-director of Absentia, which I loved. It's called Hush from 2016. Even Stephen King liked this. In fact, he may have, um, in your opinion, Josh, he may have blasphemed a little bit. So here it is. I've got from Jeff Hammer. He sent this to me and he said, I'm sure you've heard all the buzz on Hush at Netflix. And so it has Stephen King's Twitter. And then Stephen King asks, how good is Hush? Up there with Halloween. And even more, wait until dark. White knuckle time on Netflix. So Stephen, Our listeners have been discussing this on the comment boards. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was on Twitter, but they were definitely not praising it to that extent. So they, they, they didn't love it as much. I think they did like it. I just, I didn't hear anybody really over the moon about it. Okay. And you know what? Stephen King is a, a you know, he's a legend, obviously, um, in horror. But he did actually prefer the Stephen Weber shining over the Jack Nicholson, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick shining. So, well, you know. True, but the guy... Now, I will watch anything from the writer-director of Absentia because I, I actually, I thought that was a pretty freaky film. Kind of scary, uh-huh. actually. So I'm going to try it out. I'm going to get around to it. I'll let you guys know if it's worth your time. How about that? There so, we go. That'll so, be good. So we'll get around to that. But anyway, Kyle Bishop emailed. I tried to get him to come on tonight. He's very busy. 
And he said, I hope you guys have fun. I'm smack dab in the middle of finals hell. Yeah, this this would this would probably be the busiest time for him. Well, like, what what's he got to do that's so hard? I mean, it's his students that have to study. He doesn't have it's to not, study. It's not like he has to. It's not like he has to actually grade anything. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they have the little test, the bubbles that they color in, right? So, anyways, thanks for being okay. here, everybody. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this episode of Horror Movie Podcast. I love this kind of thing. Wolfman Josh, what do you got for the listeners to check out this week? Just head on over to Movie Streamcast at moviestreamcast.com. It's another podcast that I do just about movies that are currently streaming online, and we help you manage your cues. Coming up very soon, we are going to be doing the Netflix and Kill series, talking about what is screaming online, and should be a good time. Man, you're getting really clever. These <laughs> puns. <laughs> very punny. Uh, also follow me personally on Twitter at Icarus Arts, and I would be very happy. And I'm on uh, Facebook and Instagram under Icarus Arts as well, I guess. And Josh got a new film coming out called Gutbuster. We're all looking for it. So, all right, Josh, thank you. Please <laughs> <laughs> don't watch it. <laughs> what about you, uh, Dr. Shock? Same as always. Come over to DVDinfatuation.com. As Jay said, you can sign up and just get email alerts uh, each time something new is posted uh, or subscribe in a reader. Uh, there is a link for, for doing that as well. Um, you can, uh, I'm at DVD Infatuation at Twitter. Follow me there. I have a Facebook page as well. And I, uh, I'm also a co-host on the Land of the Creeps podcast uh, with, uh, with Greg Amortis, Jesse Robbins, uh, Hadfield Hatchet, hopefully be coming back soon, and a new host, uh, Dr. Dirty. He's actually Greg Amortis' original host when he started the Creature Feature Horror Show. That Whoa. was who started the show with him. And he's come back, and it's great to have him on as well. It's a lot of fun discussing uh, you know, movies with, uh, with him. Um, on the upcoming episode, uh, Greg, uh, Dr. Dirty, and myself are going to be talking about a couple of found, uh, found footage films in Troll Hunter and Frankenstein's Army. Nice. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great. Uh, tell those guys we said hi over there. Will do. I'm a big fan. And uh, I just want people to check out Movie Podcast Weekly. And let me tell you why. On episode 189, which is coming up pretty soon here. Actually, yeah, it's coming up right after this episode releases. We're going to be reviewing uh, Captain America Civil War, of course. But we're also going to be doing a Considering the Sequels podcast style review of the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy. Hmm. So if you like those movies or you want to hear us talk about them, check out moviepodcastweekly.com. Nice. And thanks for bearing with our Skype connection tonight. We usually give you good audio quality, but sometimes the internet and Skype quality is honestly out of our hands. And we love your comments, so please get involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community. Keep those coming. You can comment in the show notes or email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789. You can find all of our episodes, including the weekly Horror Movie Podcast and Horror Metropolis, at our website, horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free in iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Horror Movie Cast. And I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. That'll be linked in the show notes as well. And I think that's it for episode 88. We thank you for listening and join us again Friday after next 
Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies.